This is the Tame Aperture Podcast. Open the pod bay doors, Cal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome to the Tame Aperture Podcast, where we dive deep on films from first-time directors, indies, art house, and much, much more. Today on the podcast, we take a look into contemporary director and former video sales associate, Quentin Tarantino, and his 1992 directorial debut, Reservoir Dogs, starring Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Steve Buscemi, among many, many others, including Tarantino himself. When a simple jewelry heist goes horribly wrong, the surviving criminals begin to suspect that one of them is a police informant. Reservoir Dogs is a 1992 American crime film about a group of diamond thieves whose planned heist of jewelry store goes terribly wrong. The film depicts the events before and after the heist. It incorporates many motifs that have become Tarantino's hallmarks, violent crime, pop culture references, profanity, and non-linear storytelling. Reservoir Dogs premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in January 1992. It became the festival's most talked about film and was subsequently picked up for distribution by Miramax Films after being shown at several film festivals including Cannes and Toronto. Reservoir Dogs was generally well received with the cast being praised by many critics despite not being heavily promoted during its theatrical run. The film became a modest success in the United States after grossing $2.8 million against its $1.2 million budget. I'm Gabe Vienendahl, filmmaker, film instructor, and movie enthusiast, and I'm joined today by Alan Martindale, veteran podcaster and editor. Alan, how the hell are you? Doing much better this week. This is, uh, this is a better Harvey Keitel. This is more fun than last week's Harvey so, Keitel Yeah, because last week we did Harvey Keitel uh, in Scorsese's Who's That Knocking at My Door. This week we get Keitel again yeah. in Reservoir Dogs. This is an interesting film. It gets a lot of accolade. Mm-hmm. Not initially, as I kind of read in the opening there. Wasn't a whole lot of... It, was, it had moderate success, but later became bigger and more cult-like mm-hmm. years later. What's interesting is I think because it's a Tarantino film, it even became more... It became even larger as Tarantino grew. So when he first made it, it was there and it was kind of in the ether of filmmaking. And as he grew his own brand as a director, this film also grew a bigger following. Yeah, for sure. It wasn't like it came out the gates and it got praised, right? I mean, everyone enjoyed it and it was a good film. It got picked up by Miramax. That's mm-hmm. a big distributor. But it wasn't what I, you know, it's grown since that time. It didn't come out a smashing success. Right, right. And it culturally, or not culturally, it, it didn't come out a smashing success in the culture, grew over time. It, it, it almost feels like a lot, and I could be wrong, I could be way off base, and people could be yelling at their phones right now listening to this, but it seems like back in, back in this era of the early Sundance days, it seems like movies that did really well there didn't necessarily go on to be big, at least right out the gate. Uh, good movies for sure, but it, it, they didn't have immediate success. If I if I'm not mistaken, remember Sex Lies and Videotape was one of them. That was never really a huge movie. Clerks is another one that was never really that huge. I mean, it's more kind of like this. Cult it's got a cult following for sure. As does Sex Lies and Videotape. Matter of yes. fact, we did a podcast right. on Sex Lies and Videotape. But you're right. I think that these, at least in those late '80s, early '90s films, especially ones that get into Sundance or big film festivals mm-hmm. in general. A lot of them 
sold and they got distri- distribution, but weren't these smash successes like there's more like more even not even modern because you look at something in the early 2000s like napoleon dynamite right 2000 that was a huge success that was huge and you're talking about like an actual a critical success but also a commercial success right and you're right i think some of these films didn't quite have that although they were there's all those films that you just mentioned are all good films for sure uh by by phenomenally talented directors and it almost feels like it's you know definitely made for film buffs type of thing but maybe not uh good not not on the right wavelength to hit with the major markets i think if you're and 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 that's an interesting way to say it because i think if you're talking film buffs i mean there's really no bigger film buff than tarantino absolutely absolutely he's not just a director he's a huge film buff right like i consider myself a film buff like a movie enthusiast and then he's at this whole other beyond being a great director. Like he's also at a whole nother tier. Well, I mean, he's such a film buff, and I'll just get this out of the way that he basically ripped this movie off. Yeah, <laughs> there, it's 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 a, it's borrowing, I think, from a couple concepts. Sure, but there's but, one in particular, uh, kind of an obscure Hong Kong film called City on Fire. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, the best form of flattery is imitation. Absolutely. So if if he's looking at these films, a lot of these kung fu films in in China or in, in in Japan and all these the Asian markets were making these films or other types of films that he loved, like the spaghetti westerns or mm-hmm. Italian horror films, like that's a huge. I mean, I think every director has to borrow from somewhere, especially oh, when sure. it's your first sure. film. And I'm not defending it. I think. Uh, and I'm not also I'm not also not saying he shouldn't have. I thought I think it's fine because I think that you have to. I think there's something you have to lean on in order to kind of find what your ultimate voice is. So if this is his first film and he's and we'll get into this, but as he's borrowing from these other films that he loves, mm-hmm. he's doing it out of out of out of pure admiration. Well, and I'm sure he'd say they're kind of homages. But I mean, basically, the major plot points towards the end were basically lifted directly from City on Fire, like right. from getting shot in the stomach and then re- and then immediately murdering the assailant to the standoff at the end. And, and we'll obviously get into it, but yeah. ba- those are basically straight up lifted right. from. But with that said, it's done very well, and I just had to get that out, out of the way. He still gets his Tarantino spunk on it. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, he does. It's definitely you know his, what his I style, mean? for he's sure. Still, for sure. Even if he's relying heavily on these other films and borrowing right. structurally and, and really character and otherwise from these other films, he's still putting his little thing onto it, whatever that time. Right. So immediately we go, this guy can make movies. For sure. Because And I think it comes out of that. It's contrary in some ways, and, and we'll get into ratings and, and what we really think about, but it's contrary to something like we talked about last week with Who's That Knocking at My Door, where we thought, look, Scorsese's not hitting it out of the park. I think if you were to look at Tarantino's, in, in this film, he kind of, it, it, it's, it's a far cry from Who's That Knocking at My Door. Mm-hmm. You watch the film and go, this is entertaining. I'm enjoying what I'm watching. Right, I'm right. interested in the characters. I understand the concept of what's going on. And we'll get into that because I don't know that it's there are elements to it that are over stylized in the sense of like it's almost more style than substance. Yes. There's not a whole lot of depth to the characters necessarily. It's a lot of pizzazz. For sure. 
you know, but that's kind of what a lot of his films are. And that's what ultimately I think kind of makes them fun. And so I think he's, you know, in this film, we're getting that early on. Right. For sure. Yeah. He's definitely, uh, he's a style guy. He's all about style and, and he wants everything to look cool and sound cool. And he's very, very good at, you know, it, it's a little over the top at times, but, uh, it plays well for the most part in everything he does. So if we jump into this movie from the very beginning, I mean, it's a group of criminals, essentially, at a at a cafe, and it's them just shooting the, the shit. Yeah. Um, I mean, he, he comes out very Tarantino right from the get-go with all dialogue. All dialogue. <laughs> Heavy dialogue. But it's entertaining, and this is the thing. Like, I, I'm not... I'm not necessarily a Tarantino fan, but when I watch his movies, and I haven't seen everything he's done, but the things I have seen, I actually enjoy them. So I don't know if it's more about me just not liking the principle of it or me not liking really kind of him. He kind of rubs me the wrong way sometimes. But I, I always kind of have – I solidify this thing. I, yeah, I don't really like Tarantino, but I actually – Everything I see, I actually really enjoy watching. Right. So I don't know where that comes from. There's a, I mean, if, if you're talking about what, you know, it's fun to, I mean, look at our culture today. Mm-hmm. We have, we're doing it right now, which is like, we're just talking. Yeah. We're shooting right. the shit right. about a movie. And what I love about his films, and particularly in Reservoir Dogs, right out the gate, like we mentioned, is even though it's dialogue intensive, uh, the dialogue's funny. Yeah. The dialogue's entertaining. And so, because and it's also conversational, so it doesn't feel like they're pushing an agenda or like trying to hit a particular line. It just feels like a bunch of dudes shooting the shit, and in a funny way. I mean, they're talking about Madonna, and they're talking about. And I actually dicks. like. I actually <laughs> like their theory of of what like a virgin means. I actually yeah. kind of like that. Yeah. But it's also. Uh, we'll explain it to the audience so that they get. It. <laughs> so basically, for those that don't might not know. So uh, what was it, Mr. Brown? <laughs> who is played by Tarantino himself has this theory that like a virgin is, is about a woman getting having sex with someone who has a really, really big dick, a large penis. Exactly. And it feels like, uh, the very first time, hence the lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually, you know, it, it might actually have some weight there. You, who knows? There, there may be some truth to it. You never, but, but it's funny. The dialogue's funny. And uh, that opening scene, it's shot in this kind of rotating circular pattern going back and forth, just kind of conveying all the characters. You're getting a sense of who's there. And it really kind of establishes like uh, the dynamic between them in the sense that they're, you know, the the interest who's who in the sense of like one thing that stands out to me is that in uh, Steve Buscemi, uh, his his character is Mr. Pink. And uh, it goes from talking about dicks and like a virgin, the Madonna song, to talking about tipping waitresses. Right. Well, and that's the interesting thing about about not just this scene of dialogue, but a lot of Tarantino's dialogue scenes. It's not really servicing the characters. You're not. It's not done in order to get an idea of who these people are, except for Mr. Pink with the tipping you're kind of getting a sense of who this guy is. Yeah. Other than that, I, I'm not understanding anything more about these guys. Yeah, the, the example would be uh, Mr. Brown talking about Madonna is funny, but there's no real undertone to his character, per se. Right, right. Whereas Mr. Pink, because he talks about tipping as 
a cultural thing that's miscued, that's kind of stupid mm-hmm. and doesn't make sense. And because society tells me to tip, I don't need to tip. Why are they mandating that I tip waitresses? Right. Why aren't we tipping everybody? Like someone at McDonald's. Right, right. Because they're giving us food too. But we're deciding to tip. And you get into this guy, okay, he's all about a contrary approach to everything. Not only that, but it actually it services his character later on when there's a lot of emotion going on and he keeps saying, I'm the only one acting professional here. You get the sense that he is he's the, he can separate himself from all the emotion. Like they're saying these people work, they're kind of you know, tugging at the heartstrings. These people work their ass off and you got to tip them. But he's like, no, I'm just looking at this logically and this is how I feel. Very true. And he does the, the tiniest violin thing and it's like he's not going to be swayed by a, by being overly emotional about one thing or the other. Right. No, that's true. And so you get a sense into his character later and that plays into some that's of That's why the, he, he's my favorite character in this Mr. whole thing. Mr. Pink? Yeah, Mr. Pink. Well, Steve Buscemi, I mean, that's a whole sidebar conversation there. Great actor. Like, oh, he's great. He's, he's, he's always inter- intriguing to watch. No matter what. He looks silly, but I know. that's not a knock on him. I, I just think, well, it is, I guess. He's the, <laughs> he's the highlight of any Adam Sandler movie, let's face it. Like, but he's hilarious. Yeah, exactly, because most Adam Sandler movies kind of suck, but yeah. he's great. Yeah. No matter what, he's great. He he is he is funny. He He's also uh, he's a great actor. You look at something like Boardwalk Empire, yeah. some of the more serious things that he's done beyond the Adam Sandler stuff even and he's he's phenomenal um so so steve buscemi the other people involved in this of course other actors we got harvey keitel tim roth and michael madsen uh chris penn i mean the list is pretty that that core group is pretty pretty intense when it comes to performers um so for you to be able to single out that's your favorite character is Impressive, because that's a pretty good there's lineup. A, there's a close second, too. Yeah. I got a feeling it's Mr. Blonde. Yes, it's Mr. Blonde. I think that most people look at this, and they there's something about Mr. Blonde that's cynical and dark and evil. Well, plus, I, I always kind of have a an affinity for the villains in movies. Like, I, I love horror movies. Like, it's just my kind of my thing, and it's just there's something sadistic about him that's intriguing. I think everybody does, yeah. whether they admit For it sure. or not. Like I, there's I something intriguing, and I think partly it's because it's probably contrary to our own position. I agree. Do you know what I yep, mean? For sure. Uh, there's something intriguing, and I think Michael Matson, and we'll get into some of his stuff later, is phenomenal. I mean, He's, if you're Quentin Tarantino, and this is your, and you're a movie buff, and this is your first feature, how? Just how lucky are you to get these this lineup of actors? So this is crazy. And I may miscue a few parts to the story. He's, uh, he's working at a, at a video rental store, right? It's not Blockbuster. It's someone in, in L.A. And I don't remember what it's called. It doesn't matter. But he's also writing and he want, he's an aspiring director. He's thinking that him and Lawrence Bender, who's the producer of Reservoir Dogs, mm-hmm. uh, he thinks to himself, well... I'll have Lawrence act in it and we'll have a couple characters and we're going to make, we're going to shoot this uh, film that I wrote for, we, they had somehow, I don't know how it was. They had, the story goes that they had accrued about like 30,000 or $60,000, something to that effect. And they were just going to go shoot on 16 millimeter of film. Mm-hmm. And the film was Reservoir Dogs. It was a film that he wrote. I can't remember some connection that he had, but it ends up getting to Harvey Keitel somehow. Okay. I don't remember how. Right, right. But it gets to Keitel, and he reads it, and he goes, "Yeah, this is really good. I want to be in it." No way. Can you imagine? Can so you imagine? He now 
Carantino's like, oh shit, Harvey Keitel Harvey wants to Keitel. be in my movie. Oh my and God. so he gets the co you'll see it too in the credits. It comes up Harvey Keitel it says co producer. Oh, cool. And uh, that's how it started was that once Keitel attached, then of course it's people, opening doors. It opens huge doors. People are it's circulating and people are thinking. And so Keitel flies out on his own dime, Tarantino and Bender, to go to New York and do casting. And when they're in New York do, <laughs> doing casting, I mean, this has to have been just this would have been a fun documentary to watch. I cannot just if you could have had someone following him through this process on his first movie just as a director, as, as a director and someone, you know, who aspires to do this kind of thing. That would just blow my mind. I think if Harvey, because he's a film buff, as we know. So sure. you're like, you probably shit your pants when Harvey Keitel comes and I'm serious. Like, right, he's like, right. What? He wants to be in the movie. Right. And he wants to co-produce. Right. So, I mean, anyway, yeah, it'd be fun to have been a fly on the wall or to have seen some documentary about that process because he flies them to New York. And, of course, there's a great acting pool in New York mm -hmm. and a lot of, you know, great actors. And that circulates around. And so he gets to Tim Roth and Michael Madsen and Steve Buscemi, and they all love it and they want to be part of right. it. Right. So it's just kind of this magical event of, like, taking it from a video rental associate you know, video story right, associate right. to writing a script that kind of falls into the hands of Harvey Keitel <laughs> that then he wants to help co-produce. And now you've lined up these phenomenal actors from New York to, to be in the movie. Well, thank God for, for Tarantino, because if he would have just made this with a couple buddies and didn't have actors with those chops, it, it would have been, who's that knocking at my it door? It would have been like, you cannot come out with your first scene is only dialogue not even exposition, just dialogue. And if you don't have guys who can actually carry it and do it, it disaster first scene. That's it. Now, keep in mind, too, it's kind of funny that they were, were following last week's podcast with this one. Right. Because this also has nonlinear storytelling. Yes. This also is, a, of course, a first-time director, which is a common theme for us. But also, it's a, a group of guys. In, and not, last week's wasn't just a group of guys, but it... It was it had a group of guys, and this is like that are talking and doing things that guys do. In this case, there's a little more heightened story and yeah. plot because they're dealing with their criminals. They're going there's on an actual plot. There's in this a plot. One. There's yeah. a plot. There's a plot for sure, and that's where he succeeds. Um, but I think you know the point to that is like the contrast between the two is kind of interesting. Um, between who's that knocking my door and and. Uh, uh, pulp, oh, not Pulp Fiction. What am I talking about? <laughs> they all fucking blend together. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, so, but between uh, uh, Reservoir Dogs. So, you get this great, we we're talking, you get this great cast, and at that point, you can't lose. Yeah. I mean, if, it, if he had f messed this up, I mean, we wouldn't know what we know about Tarantino today. We wouldn't see the films that we've seen. I agree. I think so. I think I the think actors carry. The actors, I mean, now I will say that his writing's fun and stylistic. Oh, absolutely. So that does now you, but you need, like you're saying, you do need someone attached to that dialogue who makes it believable, because it could come off fake. It, it feels or or over. Do you know what I mean? Over the top. If someone's not delivering it, and you're feeling that you believe in that person at what they're actually mm -hmm. saying and it just feels like a line, then that's different. So the actors do carry it. But 
it's also a nod to his writing style, which is fun. For sure. I it's, I mean, as far as obviously the writing carries it and then the actors carry it. This, this whole thing kind of feels like a stage play to me because there are a lot of long takes. There's not many setups. There's not a whole lot of action and just a lot of dialogue. That's interesting. I, I think that that's probably uh, a, a, a very you know plausible take on it because the 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 style in which it's set up it yeah i think the big thing for me is there's not a whole lot of locations in the sense of like a lot of dynamic changes i mean they go to the warehouse or the 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 meet point after the 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 heist but yeah it, it, it and it's just a lot of conversation between these characters yeah and they're kind of slowly escalating the story as it goes forward so I agree. I think it's actually got a lot of play-like or th- uh, theatrical-like qualities to it, which I find. And, and, and to combat that, I mean, you go to a play or, you know, everything's carried by the actors. Exactly. So and the writing. And the, and the writing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and if you look at this, like, it's not, it's still got stylistic things, but directorially in terms of coverage and where they're mm-hmm. putting the camera. I mean, there's some cool shots and cool things that he For does. Sure. Even the opening scene, like we mentioned, is cool because they're kind of working the table in a right. fun way. But you're right. I think heavily reliant on the writing then, and, and performed by real phenomenal actors. For sure. I mean, there's a, a lot of one-take scenes in this. And uh, I think the most complicated shot I saw was a steady cam shot following Mr. Blonde outside to the car and then back into the warehouse. Oh, yeah. And I yeah. think that's it. Yeah. I mean, I tried to kind of pay attention to that. I didn't see anything more complicated than that. So let's introduce the characters just a little bit um, and kind of go through, like, who's who. So they're at this table. You have Harvey Keitel. Harvey Keitel's Mr. White. You have Tim Roth, who's Mr. Orange. You have Michael Madsen, who's Mr. Blonde. Chris Penn. <laughs> he's so good. He's so, so good in this so movie. so much fun. Under, I mean, if you think about Reservoir Dogs, you're thinking Keitel and Madsen right. and Buscemi and these guys and Roth. Right. You don't really think of Chris Penn. No. In the, in, the, in the initial thought of the movie. Right. And then you see him in here and he's so good he's at it. He's so good. He steals the show. R.I.P. Chris Penn. Yep. Um, Steve Buscemi is Mr. Pink. Um, and then you have Lawrence Tierney, uh, who's Joe Cabot, who's kind of the leader, the the mafioso mm-hmm. kind of character that's overseeing the big heist from a, uh, you'd say like a godfather or administrative perspective. For sure. Um, so a lot of, a lot of great actors. And then of course the last one you throw in there is Quinn Tarantino as Mr. Brown. So um, at, at there, there's another, we don't see him. Mr. Blue dies. Mr. Blue, so we don't care yeah. about Mr. Blue. He's, he's in it for half a scene. I'll say no offense to <laughs> Edward Bunker, but we don't care about Mr. Blue. Uh, uh-uh. He's irrelevant to the story. No. I mean, how much dialogue does he even have in this? Just, I think, an opening line at, yeah. his, at the cafe. I think that's about it. That says something, you know, anyway. Yeah. He's out of there. <laughs> <laughs> so you have all these, and, and they're in there. And now, when they're in the cafe, like, nobody's met each other except for Nice Guy Eddie, played by Chris Penn, and, of course, Joe Cabot, who's his father. Mm-hmm. And then Mr. Blonde has some kind of association that we learn about later, and also Mr. White. But nice guy Eddie and Joe Cabot, their father and son. And then there's some relationships to them. But the other characters, the Mr. Whites, the Mr. Orange, Pink, you know, all them, they don't know each other. Right. They've never met. Right. And they don't call each other by their real names uh, for anonymity. They're trying to stay secretive as they plan this heist to go rob a 
high-profile jewelry store. And it's it's made known by Joe that you don't, for any circumstances, tell anyone anything about yourself. Never divulge anything about your history and never divulge your true name. Right. Yeah. Um, this becomes a sense of a plot point later on, too, um, between uh, Mr. Mr. White and Mr. Orange. Um, but, yeah, so these guys don't know each other, and they're prepping to go on this heist. It's interesting because... It's not traditional. And what I mean by that is, like, if you think of a heist film, it f- always feels like everybody's cohesive and everyone's, like, a perfect team. Ocean's Eleven is what you think. Yeah. You, you think everything's planned out and it's super cool and we are all got our own thing we're doing and we know each other and we've worked a million jobs together. Whereas here... It's not really like that. I mean, there's camaraderie in, mm-hmm. in the silliness, but it doesn't feel like there's camaraderie like in the same way you would think of an Oceans film. And, and so I find it kind of interesting that that's the setup. You're just learning about these characters as they're learning about each other. Right. And I find that kind of an interesting setup to start the movie. In typical Tarantino fashion, it, after the cafe scene, it cuts to this exaggerated slow motion shot of, of the eight of them walking down, you know. And it feels like uh, the footage stutters. Like, it feels like they didn't shoot it on the right frame rate. Yeah, they, they didn't. It feels like <laughs> yeah. they shot it at too low of a frame right, rate. Right, right, It sure. was like 16 frames per second or something. Hey, man, it was like, his first day. You know, he's never done this before. <laughs> you got That's when you got to rely on your DP. Exactly, exactly. You got to ask yeah. the DP, I want this to be in slow motion. What's an ideal frame right, rate? Right, exactly. Yeah. Oh, okay, 120 or yeah. whatever the number is. Right. Um, so, but that that shot, and then and then we ha- we hear the music in t- typical Tarantino fashion, that real kind of the the seventies kind of vibe music, and then the title comes in, and then we we move on in the storyline. We basically start to uh, it, it cuts to this real abrupt scene, right? Which which is Mister Orange in the backseat of a of a car, bloody and bleeding and dying, and it's basically Tim Roth desperately trying to keep an American accent as he's panicking in the backseat. <laughs> I've thought about that. And what's funny is in the roll credits at the end, I saw a crew member that said dialect coach. Not only that, but little um, we're jumping ahead a little bit. The chick, the, 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 the woman who shot him was his dialect coach. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 We'll, we'll get into Amazon, that story. Amazon Prime. Gave me that little tidbit. We, <laughs> X-ray. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, X-ray working double this this movie, but but yeah, Tim Roth. He's he's a great actor um, for sure. And and that scene, even with the holding in of the the British accent, um, still really good. It, it feels really believable. It's scary. It's scary. He, he's like, this is a it's man intense. who's dying. Yeah. And and it doesn't. It feels real. He's really good at it now. Uh, the two people in the car, you have uh, Mr. Orange in the back dying, and you have Mr. White in the front driving. And they're obviously the setup to this is that something's gone wrong at the heist that they had planned. Right. Uh, we don't know any details. We don't understand any any other kind of dynamics to it. But something went wrong because now this man's nearly dead or dying. Well, and I love that cut from the, the, the cool shot of them walking like we're all one crew. To immediately something's wrong. Yeah. Like immediately, you know, it went it went to shit. It did not go. It kind of went the way they planned it, which was they didn't. Right. Exactly. It, or it felt like they exactly. didn't. Exactly. Exactly. It, it went, it rever- it revolted or it revert revered back to 
the idea that uh, Madonna, like a virgin, and like there was no preparation. They were just talking shit. They're and just then having a, a good sudden, time. They're gonna waltz in there. They're gonna take these diamonds. No problem. We get a little later where they did put a little bit of sure. research in, but yeah, it's a cool contrast to see like happy go lucky, ready to go do this heist. Right. This group of eight people were ready to rock and roll to complete disaster. Total disaster. Yep. And they're having this conversation, Mr. White and Mr. Orange, in the car. And I can't remember, you have to remind me, when does Mr. White, he's already revealed his real name to Mr. Orange. Uh, Because Mr. Orange is yelling out Larry, isn't he? I think so. I I think so. I know he's already revealed that he is a Brewers fan. They've already talked that he's a Milwaukee Brewers fan. Yeah. Uh, I think he might tell them in the car. I can't. I cannot remember. But. There, somehow, there's been a stronger rapport between Mr. White and Mr. Orange, mm-hmm. and Mr. White, played by Harvey Keitel, has divulged the information that Joe told him to never divulge. Right. Which is where you're from and what your name is. Right. This has been, and 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 you kind of think, well, it doesn't matter because Mr. Orange t- is going to die anyway. Right. So even if he did divulge that information, well, he's good. He's as good as gone. Yep. So it doesn't matter. Yep. And they go to a safe house, essentially. Mm-hmm. The, the meeting point. So at least they did that planning. Yeah. At least they planned <laughs> it when things go awry or things go, or the, maybe that was just the final destination anyway. Mm-hmm. But they arrive there. Nobody else is there. And it's all kind of chaotic. You're trying to, you're hearing them talk and what went wrong and what's going on and what's, and then, and then uh, Buscemi, Mr. Pink, shows up to the warehouse. Yep. And he's, it's interesting because his character is immediately skeptical of everybody. Yes, because he's, he, and I, this is why I love him because. In terms it, of being a, someone being a rat. Exactly. Didn't go right, someone. He knows immediately. Yeah, and, and Mr. White doesn't quite understand. He hasn't pieced it together yet because it's just been chaos. But Mr. Pink is an absolute professional. He looks at things logically, and this goes back to the whole tipping thing. He doesn't get caught up in the emotion. He looks at things logically, and he knows that there's been a that there's a rat that something went wrong. The cop showed up way too fast, and they 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 he knows he knows. So because Mr. White to me, I'm curious. He's been doing this a long time. He's been a, a criminal mm-hmm. for a long time. It's 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 well it's not well noted, but you you gather that immediately. And I don't like, he feels naive to it, or he has, or is it just him being more sympathetic and sensitive to a dying man? Because I I feel like he should also be a little bit uh, standoffish to believe that anybody in the crew at all, like Mr. Pink is is essentially just not going to believe anybody. Right. Mr. White is like, I have a dying man here. We need to get him to a doctor. Right. Uh, Mr. White is definitely more empathetic to other people. Why do you care? Why um, my my curiosity about the character is like, why do you? Why does he care? What is it about? To be honest, like if you're if you're a full blown criminal, the heist went to shit. Right. You you get to the safe house, and one man's been shot, and you're bringing him in and talking about getting a doctor, and you don't take him to the hospital. So at least you have that idea mm-hmm. of like, I'm not going to throw him into that situation. But like, what makes his character care? And, and I think that's just him. And and there, this is, I have a little bit of a problem because there's a little bit of inconsistency with his character. But we we know that for some reason he's got he he's got a real liking for Mr. Orange, Mr. Orange, right? Tim Roth. Yeah. Okay. He's got a real liking for him. He's bonded with him for some reason. 
But he also doesn't like Mr. Blonde because Mr. Blonde was just recklessly killing people. Right. So, so he's, at the heist, it's revealed when and when Mr. Blonde comes in later that he was right. fucking crazy. Right. And he even says, you know, how old was that girl? 1920? Something, you know, something like that. So he obviously doesn't agree with the killing. But later on, he even says uh, they're kind of staking the place out. And Mr. Orange is asking him, you know, what if they don't give you the money? And he's like, you cut off his finger. Yeah. So there's a little bit of inconsistency there um, because I, I want to believe that Mr. White is full blown like an, he, he's empathetic. He's he's quick to bond with people like he was having a good time in that cafe, enjoying, you know, enjoying the company. He's that kind of person. Right. Um, he even he even dives in on Mr. Pink about how waitresses are hardworking people. Exactly. And you need to tip them. Exactly. And so you get that empathy or sympathy. Early exactly. On. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that, that's why it's a little inconsistent when he's saying you cut off the, the pinky and then you threaten to cut off the thumb. It seems it seems cruel for for what we know from his from his character. Right. So in the safe house at this point, it's Mr. White, Mr. Orange, and we've got Mr. Pink. Right. He comes he comes later. And so the three of them are trying to it's this confusion, mm -hmm. even for the viewer. You understand conceptually what's going on, which is it went wrong, but you're trying to figure out where this is going next in the story and who did what and, and where they're going and where are the other guys at. Right. You're constantly kind of questioning yourself like, well, there was eight of them total, including Joe. Where are Where is everybody now? It's revealed that Mr. Blue, who we didn't care about in the beginning anyway, because he's been killed by the right. cops. Right. And obviously there was not just a heist gone wrong, but a large mass shootout. And, and this is, I also like the way this whole scene was handled because it's exposition. It yeah. totally is, but it's not forced. Like it's, it, you're, you're living in the moment with them. You're trying to figure out what the hell happened while they're trying to figure out what happened. Yeah. There's a curiosity. Yeah. But you're still getting all the information, but just not, it's like that mystery box. You're not, you're not getting it all but you got you getting some piece by piece. This by piece. is where I attribute like a good sense of of plot structure into Tarantino's writing and like you said it is a mystery box and anytime you can keep that mystery box closed off mm -hmm. for for however long it can be without uh, getting to a point where the audience goes oh, I don't give a shit anymore. Right, right. Uh, right. It's a delicate balance. But I think he does it really well because you're constantly going, well, what happened? Right. Like, who? Why is this guy? Why is this guy not here? Where's the rest of them? Where's the even, rest of them? We don't even know who's who at this point. We just they're saying a lot of names and we don't know which characters which. And characters. that's the other interesting thing about it is like nobody's got a real. It you're kind of observatory in your viewing pattern because nobody's a real person. Right. Right. Everybody's someone else. Right. And you're not really sure who's who. You know what I mean? And so you don't, it's not that you're not attached to what's happening in the story, but none of the characters are really, um, I don't like, you don't love, I mean, they're, they're criminals, but you don't love any of them or like in the sense of like, if he dies, he dies. That's right. how I feel. And we'll get into that at the end too. Cause that's, that's kind of, uh, foreshadowing a little bit about how I feel about the overall concept of the movie. Well, and there was a part here though, that made me very intrigued. And that's when they talk about Mr. Blonde being a psychopath. Yeah. And this is when Mr. White's like, you never work with a psychopath. You see him just shoot those people. And then I'm thinking, who the hell's Mr. Blonde? Yeah. The curiosity is yeah. there. It's sparked. It's like, I got to know who Mr. Blonde is. Yeah, because you're not really sure. Right. I think they, I mean, when they do the cafe, he does have something. But I don't I think know that so. they ever introduce his character as Mr. Blonde. So you're immediately going, okay, well, let's, which one's which? Right, right, and right. And that's what you're trying to figure out. As it goes on, I mean, at this point, 
Mr. Orange is in and out of consciousness, mm-hmm. and he kind of just uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. White, who's Harvey Keitel, and Mr. Pink, Stevie Buscemi, kind of go into another room, and and uh, they're trying to figure out what to do with him. Essentially, mm-hmm. we didn't get a doctor. You know who's going to be here? Uh, Mr. Pink, like you mentioned, is very professional and logical in the sense of like, let him die; it doesn't matter. Right. And Mr. White's like, we got to save him, and he takes a personal responsibility because he feels uh, as though it was his fault that Mr. Uh, Orange got shot. Mm-hmm. They go to this back room and they're discussing the next steps and what's what and who's who. And they come back in and Mr. Uh, Orange is basically unconscious. Yep. Or pretending to be. Oh, that could be. I didn't even think and about we'll that. And we'll get into that later I didn't on. Think about that. And then, but and, and this is a part where you see Mr. Pink a little worried. He's like, "Is he dead?" It's like, "Oh Jesus, I thought I thought he died on us." Yeah, and that that gives his a little bit of insight into his character, even though he's more logical and professional. Like he still doesn't want the team to die. It, exactly. And I wonder maybe if it was more because that's going to cause us more problems later on. Could be that too. Yeah, yeah. But he's not in the same. Uh, arena as uh mr. As mr. blonde or as mr blonde i mean in terms of uh mr blonde oh, not giving not yeah giving not a giving shit. a shit yeah exactly yeah. so they're sitting there they start arguing and i love how this transpired this is a great uh technique uh both from a filmmaking perspective and also just from an anticipation perspective because mr white and mr blonde not sorry, Mr. White and Mr. Pink start getting into it. Mm-hmm. Like Harvey Keitel and Steve Buscemi. This is a great scene where they're kind of just going back and forth with each other. It's so good. This is intense. They're neither of them are seeing eye to eye. Right. And it's just this thing. And they start literally physically getting to a point where Mr. White kind of starts, he gets the upper hand and kind of beats the shit out of yeah. Mr. Pink yeah. a little bit, kicking him and stuff. And they pull their guns, right? And then Mr. Pink flips around and pulls his gun. He's like, you want to fuck with me? Right. You know? And then they both pull their guns. He's like, you don't want to, you know, so it's this real dynamic. And this whole time, the camera's just pulling back. And I just, it, it's just letting actors do what they do, letting great actors do what they do. Exactly. And also, if you think about that technically, you know, a lot of times, you know, you think about filmmaking, it's like the closer you get, the more intimate it becomes. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So like the concept being in the structure of film grammar is like, hey, if I'm in tight on a close up, I'm in that person's. Right. I'm feeling that person as I get away. I'm not feeling it as much. Mm -hmm. And I love that he plays the contrary technical approach, which is like you would think as someone's fighting, you would be in there tight and it'd right. be like really close up. And like you mentioned, you let good actors do their thing and you start wondering, why is this such a slow pullback? Right. What is, why? Because you're getting farther and farther from the action and the intimacy of this real and it, they, dynamic they scene. They feel smaller and smaller in that big, huge room too. Yeah. Right. Feel smaller and smaller. And, and fi- it is a long pullback. Right. And then finally you see this kind of side profile with a little so cool soda cup. It's so cool, and it's revealed that it's Mr. Uh, Blonde. He's just Michael Madsen. Wa- he's just sitting there watching. Sitting there watching. Then he has this line: "You kids shouldn't play so rough. Somebody's gonna start crying." <laughs> That's what it was. You kids shouldn't play so rough. Somebody's gonna start crying. I just think it's so funny because it really, the casual nature in which he's standing there and the line that he delivers while two dudes are pointing guns at each right, other. Right, right, it, He's not even flinching in any sense. He's not, there's no urgency to what he's trying to stop them. And this is where you really kind of start to get the psychopath vibes. Immediately, because two guys with guns on your team, you don't want more dead bodies necessarily, even if it's, you know, 
He's just casual. Doesn't matter. He's been sitting there watching it. He's watching it. He didn't just walk in. He's been watching it the whole time. He's been there for (laughs) the whole thing. So this camera pulls back and reveals that. And I just love that line. And it really brings us into that character. And then. And while Mr. White and Mr. Pink are fighting, I just got to. I'm going to keep reiterating this. Mr. Pink says something to the effect like, I'm acting like a professional. You're not. Like, you, you need to be more suspect of everybody. I'm the one acting like a professional here. Right. And he just, this is just a, an ongoing theme. And it's even, if you think about it, like, you kind of go, well, man, maybe Mr. White should have just listened to Mr. Pink the whole time. Right, right. You find out later, right? Right. So, yeah, he's more, prof- he's saying, I'm more professional, I'm more professional. Then it pulls back. We, we're now we're introduced to Mr. Blonde. We know who he is. We, we also know that he was responsible for the shootout. Because, of, right. like you mentioned, the exposition, right. right? So we know that he's the psychotic one, not only from this this really casual scene of serious thing going on and him just observing comically, but also, like, we get the exposition that he's the one that shot out the, right. the, the jewelers um, and was just killing, like, random citizens <laughs> and cops. <laughs> just killing everybody. Just killing everybody he could. So we get this introduction into Mr. Blonde. Now we kind of know. We have Mr. Orange, Mr. Pink, Mr. White, Mr. Blonde. Okay, we're getting everybody, and we're starting to be able to identify who's who. Mm-hmm. And then it, 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 there's, there's these conversations between Mr. Blonde and Mr. White. Uh, they start getting into it a little bit. They start wanting – like Mr. White kind of – Kind of steps up to him and, For sure. and calls him a psycho. For sure. More or less. Right. Right. Um, and then he, he kind of, uh, Mr. Blonde calls him out. He says, look, you can call me whatever you want. Are you going you gonna to bark all day or are you going to bite? Right. Like, let, let's make, make fucking something of it. And he just says it in the calmest way, too. In the most casual way. In the most casual and way. And I think at this point, Mr. White still has his gun out, right? He still has his gun out. And also... <laughs> And then Mr. Blonde just throws his soda. He just like throws yeah, his soda. It. Like throws it. Let's go. We're done. You know. And so anyway, they have. They're all trying to figure shit out. So the confusion is amongst the, amongst the characters. There's really no complete trust among any of them. Right. But they're all trying to ask questions about who did it, who ratted us out. And the whole time, Mr. Pink's going, someone ratted us out. And Mr. White's like, it just, things happen or whatever it is. But they're all trying to figure it out, waiting for Nice Guy Eddie, played by Chris Penn and uh, Joe Cabot, to come and, you know, basically kind of resolve the issue. Right. But in the meantime, it's also discovered that that Mr. Uh, Pink had actually preserved getting the diamonds. He so got him. Even though... Because he's a fucking professional, he's man. The, he's the pro. He's a professional. This is why Alan loves his character. Because he had the presence of mind when shit was going down, and you see him running down the street. There was Actually, when it cut back to him, and he's running down the street, yeah. and he's got the, the briefcase, he drops it when he gets in the car, and you never see him pick it back up. So I thought he lost the diamonds. Oh, yeah, that's true. But he, he, says, he says that he got them. Because so, he's a professional. He's a pro. He knows what he's doing. He's not going to let emotions get to him. He's not going to let a few bullets stop him from getting from the score. From getting the score. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, so it's revealed that he gets him. Um, and then <laughs> a few minutes later, Nice Guy Eddie shows up. Nice Guy, and I'm, and I'm not blazing through it, but I'm going through it a little quicker. 
he he comes in and he's they're all talking about where's Joe? Where's Joe? What Joe's the leader, the the Godfather? Uh, he's coming. He's on his way. He's pissed off. And then there's this little bit of an altercation as they're trying to figure out between Nice Guy Eddie, Mr. White, Mr. Pink, Mr. Orange. Not Mr. Orange, I'm sorry. Um, There's this little altercation there with Nice Guy Eddie. And Nice Guy Eddie, this performance, by the way, we talk about Chris Pan. So good. It's so good. It's so good. I was looking at it, too. He is only, let's see, he, he, now Chris Pan died. In like 2005 or 2006, mm-hmm. um, he was only like 40 years old, so he's pretty pretty young. So that means this came out in '92. That means in this performance, he's only like 24. Man, he looks older than that. 23. <laughs> like he's not old. Right, right. Um, but he's so good in it. And by the way, for those listening, Chris Penn is um, actor Sean Penn's brother. And he looks a lot like him. He looks like just a, a fat version of Sean he looks Penn. A, he looks like a fat version of Sean Penn. Exactly. Nice guy, Eddie. Mr. Pink says, I got the diamonds. I stashed them. I didn't bring them with me because I wasn't even sure if this was a safe house. Right. That's how much he's forward thinking in his professional life. And, and also the whole time he's like, we got to get out of here. Cops are going to be here. We don't know who's been captured. We don't know. The only thing that anyone can really give the cops is this location right and we so we got to leave like he's think he's smart man he's smart he's on top of the whole the whole thing he's quirky but he's smart and he's got it he says okay i got him and so nice guy he says look mr mr blonde you're gonna stay here with mr orange who's unconscious dying Mm -hmm. shot on the floor he's been he's bloody and bleeding and mr white and mr pink you're gonna come with me we're gonna go get the diamonds so Mr. Mr. Orange or Mr. Sorry, Mr. Blonde, uh, Michael Madsen, you're in charge of of whatever's happening. Right, here. right, right. Now, one thing I've totally skipped over, which is absolutely crucial, is before Nice Guy Eddie comes, after Mr. Blonde is introduced, he says, "Come with me outside." And this is after they've calmed down. They're not fighting anymore. They're not fighting anymore. And he says, you want to see this. I got something for you. I got something for you guys. You're going to Come like outside it. with me. You're going to enjoy <laughs> this. And he goes outside and opens his trunk to his car, and there's a cop tied up. And they all smile. And they all smile. They all love it. Yeah. They do. And they bring him in, and then their reasoning is that we'll tie this guy up, this cop, and we'll beat him to shit and, and torture him in any way we can, so maybe he'll divulge how the cops knew. Right. Like, how did they, how did the cops get there so fast? How did they know that we were there? Whatever it might have been, we got ratted out. So they tie this cop up, and then Mr. Our nice guy Eddie comes and does the whole thing we talked about. But then Mr. Pink and Mr. White, they leave with nice guy Eddie, and it's Mr. Blonde, the cop, and Mr. Orange. And Mr. Orange, who is unconscious unconscious lying on the floor allegedly allegedly because we'll get into that towards the end i'm not sure (laughs) entirely and uh mr blonde's in charge that's a bad uh thing for that cop and you just you feel it as soon as they leave you feel it like you just feel like this is gonna get really bad there's a his michael madsen's so good and it's just in how the impression and the physicality of how he when he says you're in charge, he starts to go, okay. Gets I'm a little gonna, swagger going. Yeah, he gets yeah. a little swag. Yeah. They leave. And before it gets into anything too crazy, you already know that this cop's in for it. 
Yeah. It's not going to be a good situation for this cop. And essentially, it's this really now famously put together torture scene. Right. Right. And the cop's tied up, and Matson's walking around doing a little turns dance. Turns on the radio. Turns on the radio, you know. And then he so, pulls out the blade. Pulls out a when blade. When he pulls out that blade, and he starts, like, fake shaving himself, I'm just like, holy shit, just get it over with. Yeah. I've seen this movie before. I know what's going to happen, but, but just get it over with. But you still feel that anxiety. Yes. Even having yes. seen the movie a few times. Um, and then he, he takes the blade out. And he's dancing to the music, playing her. He's just playing it so well. It's just so, so <laughs> iconic. It's so iconic in, in the sense that it's funny because, like, I was thinking about this when I was watching the scene. Last year, I edited a feature film. And the feature film's dark comedy. And the, it's about military uh, Marines mm-hmm. um, in the field, in Afghanistan or Middle East. And in the middle of war, they get a, a, a prisoner of war, essentially. It's this, it's this terrorist. And they put him in a tent. And the whole scene, that I was, as I was cutting it, this was while I was editing uh-huh. it, I was like, and, and what they do in the scene is the Marine start, is, is crazy. Right. He's delusional and just psychotic, essentially. And he, it's, it's, a, it's a reimagining or a replication in some ways of this scene, and he cuts the ear off. And the whole time I was editing, I'm like, this, it's funny because Tarantino homages everybody in Reservoir right, Dogs. Right. And in this little independent film, they're totally right, homaging right. Reservoir Dogs. Do, do they, do they see, do it, the same thing where the camera pans away? 100%, okay. almost the exact same way. He cuts an ear off, except for, and he looks at it, he has an ear in his hand. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's totally Reservoir well, Dogs. Well, and this, they, they shot this two ways, too. They shot it with actually showing him cut the ear off. Right. And that didn't play as well as panning away and not showing it. And this is kind of like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, my favorite movie of all time. When the girl gets hung on a hook, you don't see it. Right. But you are convinced you've seen it because it's so disturbing. Yeah, sometimes not seeing the action but feeling the implication yes. is stronger. Definitely. This is a pan away, so it pans away and it just sits against the wall while you hear a little bit of what's happening. Yep. Um that 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 build to me, yeah. I mean, I think it it plays in this particular scene. It plays much stronger. Um, I think a lot of times as a filmmaker, you might want to go. I really want to in Tarantino, especially. You would think that that would be something, in terms of the high violence and the blood and the grotesque. Well, plus, you think a, you'd want to see the ear cut off as a he filmmaker. Would. It'd just be fun to do a little bit of gore effects, you know? Like that'd be fun to do. Right. But and I and I think they did, but it just didn't it didn't play as well. It wasn't as powerful. And I wonder too, this is also in that I mean you have choices there. So in the edit, if you have the set of coverage that actually shows it, and then you have the the shot that actually pans off and mm-hmm. you just kind of hear it. I mean, this is another thing, and we talked about this last week. You you look at the editing. It's interesting to me because you have these real renowned directors. You have Tarantino in this case. Last week you had Scorsese. Um, the editing and that's a choice. Mm-hmm. Like you have the option to show it potentially. It sounds like they shot it a couple ways, multiple ways, or not to. And 
editorially, you're deciding it plays so much better by just the right. impression of it. Which is interesting because if you go like to Inglorious Bastards, and when they're cutting the swastika in the guy's head, like they show it in it, full. It's there. It's clear. Like it's not you know implied at all. So I don't know if if it's just a situational thing or if he's just gone back on that. I'll go like a. Another nod to a great editor, which is Sally Menke, mm-hmm. who at until up until her death edited all of Tarantino's films. Mm-hmm. Can't remember which one it's through, but the first five, I, first four, I think she edited, and um, great editor. Yeah, with a real kind of sad story. She goes hiking in a canyon, up in Los Angeles, has a heart attack. Jeez, is that how she died? First off, phenomenal editor. Um, she goes hiking, right, up in the canyon near Los Angeles. She doesn't come home. So everyone gets worried about her, of course, like friends and family. And then it's her body is found at the bottom of a ravine. Oh, my God. Her dog, who was with her, is alive, sitting next to her body. Oh, my God. And they had later determined that her death was heat-related. Oh, you got to be kidding me. So it wasn't, um, you know, what it was, she, the, the day she went hiking, it was like, a, it was one of the hottest days in Los Angeles. It was like 110 degrees. And you get into the valley, some of those areas get real hot. Mm-hmm. And uh, so anyway. Um, what year was that? I was 2010. Okay. Yeah, so she wouldn't have cut Inglorious Bastards. Let's see. No, she would have. She her last film would have been. Oh no, Glorious Bastards was t- two thousand nine. Oh, so did she cut that? She one? may have. Yeah, she may have. Um, but but real kind of sad story, and I find it kind of interesting that all these really prominent, you know, because I think you can. That's not all of them. Other direct, most directors once they find that relationship with an editor. Oh, for, and you can understand why they stick with them for most sure. of the time. For sure. But I always find it interesting, too, like in cases of these really, these are top high profile directors in Mm -hmm. film history. You got Scorsese, Tarantino. We could probably throw others in there. They're all female editors. That's interesting. That's interesting. I always find that interesting. Um, And there's a there's a bit by somebody. I can't remember the comedian's name. And he talks about how. The f- they're all women editors because they got to clean up the man's mess. <laughs> Not untrue. <laughs> they got to clean up that mess, the man's mess. Um, good, good at dealing with egos too, probably. Yeah, probably good diplomats, right? In terms yeah. of working a room. And, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, Sally Menke edit, edited the film, and and I think that that's it. I'm not attributing that particular scene to her, or to, you know what I mean. But mm-hmm. like, there's a choice there, and they went with the right one because it builds that ah oh, the cringe worthiness right, of right. like they cut it, the ears cut off. The well, ears and then cut. when he's playing with it, and then he's when he cuts into and it. he's doing the little whisper, it's, it's so gross. <laughs> and then and then it just it's gets sad. worse because and this is the only technical at least. As far as I can remember, the only technical shot I can remember in the film is the steady cam shot following Mr. Blonde outside. And he says, Stay put. <laughs> and he goes outside to the trunk. And he and, and you're and it's I like that they use this steady cam shot here because I don't what the hell is he do, gonna do now? Like he, I just think I saw the worst I could possibly see. And he goes out, he opens the trunk, he gets out a can of gasoline. That single shot, just going out the door, opening the trunk, 
pulls it out, comes back. And when he gets that can of gas, you go, okay, the ear was bad. Right. But you're going to burn you're gonna somebody? You're going to burn him alive. Well, plus the way the music, because there's no score in this movie. All the music is, is just like radio music. Yeah, it's kind of, it almost plays diegetic. And it's like, it's yeah. taking place in the scene, in the environment, in the right. atmosphere. But now that song, Stuck in the Middle with You, mm-hmm. that song is burned into my mind oh, that- as a horrible thing. And it's just from this one scene. Now he goes outside, the music stops. Yeah. And you feel a little safe, but you come back in and the music's playing still. And w- where it picks up, too, because it's right, the- right, Please. right. Exactly. Like, oh my gosh, this dude is crazy. And then you just, you can just feel the burn of that gasoline on that, that severed ear and the fear. He waterboards the dude. He gas. waterboards him with it's gasoline. Almost, it's what it feels because he's throwing it in his mouth. Exactly. And, his- and the tape's coming off like he's just drenched in it. It's uh, it it's a great. He, what Tarantino's good at is building such suspense and anxiety, right? Because at that point you start. I mean, of course you're feeling for the police officer, and you're also in a movie situation, highly intrigued by the craziness of this character, right? I kind of compare. This is how I kind of look at it. Like his uh, Mr. Blonde, of course. I think he's the most intriguing character of right. the film. In terms of, like we talked about, he's the villain more so than the others. But there's a weird kind of attachment that we like about that. It's like, I always think of it this way, like my wife loves the serial killer books and TV shows. My girlfriend does too, loves them. I do too, actually. Yeah, my wife's like the sweetest person in the world. Right, But she is so, she loves those so much. So my point is, you know, Mr. Blonde we love because in most ways, almost always, really, Mm -hmm. we can't relate to him. Well, he even explains that he doesn't care about any information he's going to get. He he says to the cop, he said, I just enjoy killing people. He's a serial killer. I just enjoy seeing them in pain. So because of that fact, we enjoy, we, yeah, there's an intrigue about him. And then, but it also, it also gets a little, you kind of feel for him when you, see his backstory when it flashes back to his backstory and he's just out of jail and he's with Joe and, and nice guy Eddie and they're you know they're like family and you actually feel for this guy it's like he just did a long stint in jail and he's got nothing and it's kind of heartwarming in a in a twisted messed up way that this 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 family is going to take care of him even though it's so corrupt and terrible but they're going to take care of him so that's interesting because one thing we we forgot to mention was that one of the things is, as everybody's coming into the safe house and starting to meet up, what we do with the nonlinear editing style in terms of the story is we flash back mm-hmm. to characters and we're getting intertitles that says Mr. White. And then it shows Harvey Keitel's exposition, his history. Right. And then it's like Mr. Blonde. And we're seeing the intertitle pop up, the title card, uh, that's leading us into the exposition. Right. So the one with Mr. Blonde, yeah, you get a, a sense of, um, you know what it is more than anything. I don't even I don't sympathize with him. I still think he's a dick, um, and I don't like him in terms of I do as a character, but as sure. a person, oh, sure. he, he's horrible. Sure. But you, one thing I do like about his character is you in that scene where it cuts back to Nice Guy Eddie and Joe, and you see the family tie and the relationship. And like the camaraderie and the kind of silliness that happens, 
is that you under there's um and later it's revealed uh, he's got a huge amount of loyalty yes because the concept was that he we find out he was in prison for like four years right Mm -hmm. and he had a chance to throw nice guy eddie and the family joe under the bus yep and he didn't he didn't do he didn't say a word so there's a loyalty like um uh honor among thieves you know right that he has and uh, which is strange for a psychopath that's what I mean. It's a kind of contrary almost position, but maybe he's playing into that. I don't know. We should have my wife on because then she yes. can talk about serial killer psych- psychology. Right, right. Um, but something like Ted Bundy, I mean, you know, because Mr. Blonde literally is a serial killer. Right. Because he just killed however many people, half a dozen he, people. He, and he enjoyed it. And he loved it. Right. And I get the sense it, 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 whether or not he, he was... Uh, convicted of it. It wasn't his first time. Well, not only did he love it, he's the only one who shows up at the safe house, not a disheveled mess. And not only that, he's got a soda. They he ask, was so like, where, are your French, where are your French fries? He said, I ate them on the way. <laughs> which, which always had me curious. Like, that is kind of an interesting... And, and now that when you think about it that way, it plays into his character quite well. Right. But when you first watch it, you go, how the shit does this guy have a soda in his hand right, after right. A, he, a heist? He went and gone stopped wrong. and got a soda. That's what I mean. Right, like, exactly. He just drove through the fucking drive-thru right. and got yeah, a soda? Exactly, exactly. And now that we're starting to dissect it in the way that we are, you go, that plays into his character. Totally, totally. Because that's just the, the normal thing. I killed however many people. I'm just going to get a, a burger and fries. It's nothing. It's yeah. nothing to him. And, and, and that's why it's so scary when he starts dumping gasoline on the cop. Yes, and, and he gets the the lighter out. Once that li- and and the the cops going off about he's and you start to sympathize, of course. But he's like talking about I got a kid and I got a family. He's like, kid I don't home. know anything. I've only been I have on the, no idea. I've only been on the force nine months. I don't know anything. I can't tell you anything. A good performance too, because he feels yeah. it, it feels like he is a green cop, right? Like you know what I mean. Yep. Like, he plays into that well, and then. Mr. Blonde, Matson, he he lights that thing, and you go, oh, oh shit. Oh, God, here we go. I don't want to see this. Exactly, exactly. This is torturous to watch. For me, it's, like, dark, and I don't want to watch this right. anymore. It, I'm dead. Like, it's like, if they're going to do the light, the fire on thing. Like, I, I'm big uh, documentary. I love watching documentaries. Mm-hmm. Do you love docs? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's this one. I mean, and as, as kind of... Um, uh, structural as they are and kind of like Ken Burns documentaries are just so well built. Yep. There's this one on the Vietnam War. Oh, no, no, no. I know what you're talking about. Where the monks set themselves on I, fire. I won't watch that. I won't watch that. You know what I'm that. talking about? Yeah. That. So that's I, just misery porn. That's just it's, like, it's I, just I had, a, so, I couldn't watch it. Yeah. I can't, I can't watch that stuff. Um, it was hard. And so my point being, um, I was like, I don't know if I can. And that's a, I don't have a huge filter. I mean, there's things I don't want to watch. Sure. But it's like, okay, it's a movie and I can contextualize it that way. Right. But I was like, literally, I don't, when the first time, this, I've seen the movie a few times. Right. But the first time, I, was, I don't, I can't, I can't do it. I can't do this. And then there's a twist and a vindication in some ways. Absolutely. You're thinking, I feel bad for the cop and I don't necessarily love Mr. Blonde as a person, as a character. He's great. <laughs> right, right. But as a person, you don't love him. He scares the shit out of me. And then all of a sudden, just a curveball in terms of the story, because right. I think he, Mr. Blonde's going to take this cop out. Yeah. 
And then all, he lights the, the, the Zippo, and then all of a sudden, you just hear gunshots. Yep. And Mr. Blonde's taken out. Yep. And you're like, where the shit did the gun yep. fire come from? And then it cuts over, and you see Mr. Orange, Tim Roth, he's blasting the shit out of yep. him. And he, he unloads his entire unloads clip. Unloads the whole thing. And you're like, this is the another quicker one, but it's a quicker mystery box, which is like, wait a minute. He was just defending the cop because I, when I first watch it, I'm not thinking that 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 Mr. Orange is who he is. No, who who's later who's re, he's revealed as. No, not at all because he's been shot. So obviously he's he's sacrificed a lot for exactly. this heist. And there feels to be like a rapport between him and Mr. Mr. White, and and so anyway, he takes out Mr. Blonde, and you're like, what the hell's happening? And then the conversation persists. Uh, transpires between the cop who's tied up and Mr. Orange. And Mr. Orange says, hey, I'm a cop. And then another twist, the cop says, I know. And he goes, I know. We met. Because he didn't, the cop is getting tortured. He got his ear cut off. He got dumped in gasoline. He's about to die. And he didn't give up Mr. Orange sitting right over there. Which is a, yeah, because that plays into that. That's kind of interesting because initially I didn't think about it that way. I initially just thought, oh, Mr. Orange is a cop. And then you reverse it that way and you go, oh, wait, that cop did know. Yeah. And he didn't divulge. He didn't give him Even up. at the point of being burned. Right. Like, shit. Or maybe he, or he, Mr. Orange's face was down so much he couldn't tell until could after be. he shot him. But be. nonetheless, uh, there's a, a strong, uh, we talk about like honor among thieves, well, like loyalty among you know, police officers right, as right. well. But it's revealed that Mr. O- Orange is a cop. So this puts a whole twist on things. Yeah. Uh, in the sense that now Mr. White has, you kind of, you know, he's divulged information uh, about himself and where he's lived. And uh, we're wondering, well, what's going to happen to to Mr. White? It, then it goes to an inner title. Now that we know that Mr. Orange is a cop, then we see the exposition. Mm-hmm. So it goes Mr. Orange, title card, and then it starts playing. This part for me, um, in terms of just character build and uh, giving context and exposition to the story, this scene, uh, this flashback of Mr. Orange is really fun. I love it. Oh, it's and it's the longest one for sure. And it's the most, yeah, it's the longest paced one and timed one, but it's fun. Yeah, it is. It is. I don't even know what it is other than the fact that he's a cop and he's undercover and he's trying to figure out how to break into the the heist team. Well, and I like and I like his buddy, you know, or his buddy, his partner or, or mentor or whatever. What's it that is. guy wearing, by the I, way? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just unbuttoned shirt. It cuts to just... seeing them in a cafe, and there's another a black man, and then Tim Roth or right. Mr. Orange comes in, and they're talking. You know that they're both part of the force. Right. Right. What that that guy's wearing like a vest. It's, he's undercover, I'm assuming. Uh, he's got to be. But still, wh- that wardrobe. He's, and he's kind of showing him the ropes, and he's like, you know, telling the commode story. And then he goes into this whole thing. It cuts to them on a roof or something, and it, it, he talks about how you have to know ev- everything inside and out. You you got to get on the you got to get on their good side, and you have to absolutely know every little detail about every little story you tell them. And, and then it it actually cuts to. Tim Roth telling them a story and then it cuts to as if he was actually living the story. 
He goes into a bathroom. He's got which he's not because it's all a written script exactly by his cop buddy that he needs to memorize in order to exactly. make it feel authentic as him as a and as a and all of this was done so well and the I editing is it. so great and even like he's even in the bathroom telling the story as if he's practicing it, but he comes in the bathroom and he's telling a story about how he's got weed and there's. These cops in there, and there's a dog, and he's the dog's barking at him, and it's just it's just so well done. It's just such a cool little thing to add in there. This is where Tarantino shines again in writing, which is like you can take something that that whole scene really informationally in terms of a story mm-hmm. is irrelevant. Totally, totally, <laughs> because totally. we already now know that Orange is a cop, right? And you always hear this, you know, when you go to film school and things like, be careful about exposition. Right. Show, don't tell. Exactly. Yeah. All that bullshit. <laughs> Stuff you teach every week, what right? I, te- I don't teach that shit. <laughs> I go another route. But but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And so, uh, but but informationally, there's nothing there. Nothing. Right. That, that pushes the storyline forward. Is there? There's no. not really. No. I'm th- I'm running it through my head. I don't think there's anything there because we already know the information. And I always get these things, and, and I'll go on a rant because it's like I always get, when I have done short films or worked on other projects, you know how it is. You always do like a little spotting session or a little critique session. You show people around you to kind of get vibes on mm-hmm. what's happening and how they think about or see it and feel it. And everyone always goes, don't not, not the don't show me, don't tell me, but everyone always says, like, I don't want to see uh, the history if I already know the information. In other words, like... Don't be redundant. Yeah. There's yeah. a thing of, like, you've already established this piece of information. We don't need to reconstitute it. We don't right, need to show right. people again or hear it again or whatever it is. It's already it, the redundancy. Right. And this is redundant. But for some reason, I love this. I love how it is. It, it just gives more of a feel to how much work he's put into this. I love it because after he's sharing, uh, we're seeing this flashback, and he goes, he's building rapport with the team, mm-hmm. the Mister, you know, with Joe and Nice Guy Eddie. They're, he's trying to build trust, and they're in the in the in the the restaurant right. or the, the the nightclub, and they're and they're building trust. But I love the scene where towards the end, right before the heist, and he's in his apartment, and they call him, and he's like, "I'll be right down," you know. They call him, and we're get ready. We're gonna yeah. go prep yep. this thing. And I love what I he's Tim Roth is so awesome in this scene. He he's ready to go out the door, and he like kind of knocks on the door with his finger. Yep. And he's like thinking something in his head. He turns to a mirror. And I will destroy the actual verbatim lines. Right. But he says something to the effect of like, you're the, it's not the, the paraphrasing. You're the fucking man. Right. They right. don't know who you are. Right. You're not going to, you know, lose the secret. He's, he's basically cheering himself on, like For building sure. himself up. But I love that so much. It's so well done. Well, and, the whole, the whole thing is kind of cut like almost like a montage with dialogue. Yeah. Because it shows him learning the lines then practicing it with his with his his partner or whatever and then now he's on the big stage and uh he's actually auditioning essentially to be on this crew 
and it's kind of like his final performance. And then it's like he's getting ready for the for showtime. He's got to amp it's himself the curtain up. Call. Yeah, yeah, it's like we're gonna go out there. We're gonna fuck shit up. We're gonna do this. That's a cool metaphor because I think you could take that and go, "That's exactly what it is." Yeah, a hundred percent in terms of the analogy. Right, one hundred percent. He goes out, gets in the car, and then we see this POV shot of of uh, the cops, and we hear them talking, and they're talking about how yeah. how he's yeah. he's fucking crazy. Like, why would he want to do right, this? Right, right. They're basically telling him. To, to kind of find out where the, where he's going mm-hmm. so that they can understand where the heist will be. But that scene's great. And and Mr. Mr. Orange is Tim Roth's so fun to watch in those scenes. It's like when you can get an actor who carries, you know, sometimes you get an actor and you're like, eh, I can move on. Now. Right. I right. don't need to keep watching this guy. Like who but you get those actors that like can really hold the lens and like really bring us into a feeling or want a desire like continual kind of i want to like keep watching yes for like i could keep watching this even though the redundancy is there and there's no real information it's interesting i just want to watch this guy for another two or three minutes right right like beyond what's already there right so his flashback ultimately reveals his preparation to break into the underground and be part of this team so that he can bring them all in. That's his real goal. Yep. His real goal is like, I'm going to bust all of them. Right. Uh, I'm going to break this, this heist team underground criminal organization. And we're going to, I'm going to be a hero. Yep. Is essentially his, his, his setup. Um, so anyway, he blows away Mr. Blonde. He blows away Mr. Blonde. We know that he's a cop and that kind of re, a little bit for me, one the divulging of that little secret does kind of like revigorate. Okay, now what's going to happen to the other guys when they come back? Right, right. You know what I mean? Well, and he also says there there's cops a half a block away. They're just waiting for Joe to get here. Yeah, they're waiting for the Godfather. Yeah, That's what I call him. But the the, the kingpin, main, the, the kingpin, the, the guy, main guy. Yeah. Right. Um, and he's not there yet. Right. He supposedly is coming. Right. Um, but this whole idea that like Mr. Orange is a cop does kind of reinvigorate even more interest in the story. Because really, if you think about the story up to this point, like there's good points to it, mm-hmm. the plots we've discussed. But it's extremely stylistic, right? And I would even venture to say that I would... I think it's almost overly flashy, stylistic. It's a little bit chaotic. It's Quentin Tarantino. It's not really like as great as the character. It's a weird thing with Tarantino because with the, even as great as the characters are, you know, the greatest thing about really heartfelt characters, and I don't mean like dramatic, I just mean like ones that you attach to strong. Like I do with Mr. Orange, but it's based on the performance. Like Tim Ross, fun to watch. Yes. Like what I was saying. Yeah. It's the characters, oh, good, but Tim Ross, fun to watch. Right, right. That makes sense. So, For like, sure. Michael Matson's fun to watch. Right. The, oh, these guys are great actors. Because none of these characters I really care about. No. To be I honest. I care about Mr. White a little bit. A little bit, only because he shows that sympathy that we talked about. Yes. Yeah. But ultimately, even then, I don't care so much about him that I want him to be the victor in everything. No. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. In that traditional sense. So uh, it's revealed that. So they end up, they come. Now, wait a minute. You got to help me uh, reorganize my storyline here. Because they find Mr. Orange is, we find out he's a cop. They come back, right? Yeah, they come back. Uh, Mr. White 
nice guy, Eddie. Um, I'm missing something, though. When does Joe come? Joe comes later. He comes at they uh, nice guy Eddie, Mr. White, Mr. Pink come back. Yeah. But Joe doesn't return with them. No, he come he comes after. Now I'm getting tired. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. No, yeah, it, because the three of them come back and nice guy Eddie says, What the fuck happened here? Oh, that's right. And Mr. Orange tries to explain that he was gonna kill us all. That's right. That's right. And then and then you got to, dude, I'm getting tired. Yeah, no, you're good. I'm, I'm the same way. You're good. I'm starting to lose my focus. <laughs> I got to reignite this story here. <laughs> We're talking about Mr. Orange and the three of them coming back. Um, give me to the next, give me to the next storyline. So they come back and Mr. Orange says, Mr. Blonde was torturing the cop and he's about to kill us all. He's about to kill, he wanted to, he was going to kill you guys when you walked in. And nice guy, Eddie's like, is that the story you're sticking to? That's the story? That's right. That's right. So, <clears throat> I'm so tired right no, now. No, you're I just, good. I just hit a fucking wall. No, you're good. I totally understand. Dude, I don't know what happened. You're good. We're gonna re- I got to revitalize this here. Hold on. Let me, let me, or unless you got something, you go. But I got to re, re, redirect myself. No, you're good. So, basically... When okay, so when when the guys come back, so when nice guy Eddie and then Mr. Pink and Mr. White come back, and Mr. Orange, they they see they see Mr. Blonde just in a pool of blood, dead on the ground. That's right. He's up against yeah. And he when and then so Mr. Orange gives him the story that he was torturing the cop and he was going to kill you guys as soon as you walked in. So I had to shoot him. When he says that, we've already seen Mr. Blonde's backstory. I already know nice guy Eddie's not going to buy that shit. Yeah. He'll call bullshit on anything. Exactly. He's that kind of character. And then, but plus, they're like, it seems to me, like, from, their, from Mr. Blonde's backstory, it seems like they're like brothers. They're, they're horse playing around, you know, in the office, and it just felt like they were, you know, like family. Yeah, Mr. Blonde's flashback kind of indicates that him and Nice Guy exactly. have a, a stronger relationship. So, and, and also based on Mr. Orange's backstory, it seems like he kind of came into this late. Like, there's history with Mr. White. There's history with Mr. Blonde. There's not that history with Mr. Orange. So, no. at this point, I'm thinking, oh, shit, they're going to sniff him out fast. They're going to sniff him out super fast. And when Nice Guy Eddie looks at him and says, that's the story you're going to go with? Like this, And then he, he, he tells that this man... Did four years or whatever it was, and could have. That's right. Could yeah. have sold us down the river, but he kept his mouth shut. And you're telling me he was gonna kill me when I walked in? Now is the time. Right, right. And then, so that's that's when I'm like, oh shit, he's he's in trouble. But then you see Mr. White trying to stick up for Mr. Orange, it, which is a fleeting thing at this point. Right. You just know it's not gonna go well. No. And then when Joe shows up. And Joe immediately marches up and says, this man's LAPD. This man's working with the LAPD. We got, we got to take him out. Yeah. And Mr. White is still, I don't know where this bond came from. They gave a little backstory of them sitting in the car trying to stake it out. But I don't know where the bond, and this is something that's missing in this movie. I it think. is missing, but I think the only thing that you could feel in there would be, he does say something about his, he felt responsible that Mr. Orange got shot. Yeah, and I guess we should talk a little bit about that because they're they're running out, and this is actually a big a big 
um, point in kind of a... Well, first, we, yeah, we, we see Tarantino die. Yeah, we see Tarantino <laughs> die, yes. And, uh, Thank God he killed himself. I know, seriously. Uh, we see him die, and then the, uh, Mr. White, Mr. Orange are running. They, they stick up this lady in a car. She pulls a gun out of the glove. She box. pulls a gun out of the glove box, and this is uh, the Tim, dialect Tim coach. Roth's dialect coach. Yeah, shoots him in the gut. That's probably how she felt because he couldn't get the dialect. Well, and they said they, they wanted her in there because she was so rough on him, like as as a dialogue coach. Should have been rougher because I, I think he was still like <laughs> he was we talked having about. a hard time. He was having a hard time for sure. I'm not gonna hate on him. I could never do a British accent. Oh, I so. couldn't either. I couldn't. Either. I've tried. It's terrible. I do too. But she shoots him, and then this is, and and I gotta hit this again. This is directly lifted, and call it an homage, call it what you want, but this is directly lifted from City on Fire, like almost to a T. Yeah. The undercover cop gets shot, instinctively it's- fires back, just instinctively, and then even the way it's shot, where they hold the gun, they hold on them holding the gun. And they realize what they've done. Right. And they're the cops. They're the ones who're supposed to stop this kind of stuff. And they let they they killed someone. They killed someone who's innocent. Um, and they're not supposed to do that. So then we understand that Mr. White was there with him, and he he might feel responsible for that. So maybe that's where the bond came from. I don't I don't know. I don't know if that's strong enough. Yeah, I don't think it is. I, I this is one thing like you mentioned. I just have a flaw with which is like. What may is he just is it just him his nature? I feel like it is because the only thing you can really chalk it up to. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I feel like it is. Otherwise, why does he have such an attachment to a guy he's never met? Right, or right. really knows? Right. Um, or he, you know, it could also be that he has a level of criminal guilt, and what I mean is he's divulged information that he knew he shouldn't have. So he's trying to build that rapport with this guy that, that he holds too much to. That could be. And it's also that thing, you know, this happens a lot with like MLMs or people who are get caught up in, in pyramid schemes or Ponzi schemes where that thing where you've invested not so in much. Utah. Not in Utah. Yeah, not in Utah. <laughs> not at all. Uh, you've invested so much money. And I can't remember. There's an actual name for this. But you've invested so much money that it's almost more painful to quit and admit you were wrong then just go ahead with it right and i can't remember what the name of it is but it's um but it almost seems like that like he's he's divulged his name he's divulged where he's from he's he feels responsible like he, he's so invested in this guy being legit that he can't turn back now yeah that's and and the reality is he may know that he's not or 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 at least have a hunch but just doesn't want to uh believe that hunch and i kind of i kind of agree with that and i'll tell you why in a minute but basically joe comes in and says this man's working with the lapd we got to get rid and at this nice guy eddie has killed the cop by the way yeah cop's dead yeah um and that was kind of surprising just out of out of blue yeah he takes him out but then they get into the famous standoff so then you have nice guy eddie uh joe who's the dad of nice guy eddie right uh mr white and this is where i got confused i remember watching it when i watched it the first time where Mr. Orange lined up in this. He didn't have any kind of anything into the into the the standoff. No. So Joe because, but there's a weird cause does Mr. and this is what the technical I rewound this. Yeah, because I was trying to figure out who shot who it was like a Han Solo Greedo situation. It, yeah, it is. It, I rewound this probably seven or eight times trying to figure this out. But basically so Joe pulls a gun on Mr. Orange. Mr. White says don't do this, pulls a gun on Joe. 
And then, of course, nice guy Eddie pulls a gun on Mr. White. Mm-hmm. And don't don't point a gun at my dad. At the way he delivers that line is so don't quit pointing that gun at my fucking dad. Put, yeah. Quit pointing that fucking gun at my dad. And it's so good. It's, it's so, so good. good. And um, basically what happens is Joe shoots. Uh, so Mr. White shoots Joe. Mr. No, nice guy Eddie shoots Mr. White, but Mr. White also turns and shoots him too. This, fa- this sounds like it's, a it's, game of Clue. It's so it's not it done Colonel well. Mustard in the library with the right. lead pipe. Right. Like what we're trying to do, I can't decipher it. And this is why it's better that they have a little bit wider shot because you can't really figure out what's going on. So Mr. White shoots Joe. Shoots Joe. And I think he turns. If I he has to, because this is I where I got starts, confused. He has to turn and then shoot. He does turn. Nice guy, Eddie. He does. Or does Mr. Orange shoot him from below? Well, and that's, he could, but I remember Mr. Orange's clip is empty from shooting Mr. Blonde. Right. But Mr. White does turn. It doesn't look like he turns all the way to Nice Guy Eddie, though. That's the thing. He does turn, and a shot goes off, and then Nice Guy Eddie falls. So I think, I think the whole idea is that Mr. White shoots both Joe and Nice Guy Eddie. Yeah, because ultimately, anybody who has seen... Reservoir Dogs can correct us. Right. With their and I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will, which is great. But everyone's on the floor, practically or nearly dead. Except Mr. Pink. Yeah, he hit under the... St- He's a professional, man. He is. I love this guy. He's a fucking professional. He saw the shit going down, so he hid under the stairs. It's funny because now that you say that, we were so entrapped in the standoff, we... Literally in our own discussion, forgot about Mr. Pink. This is why, and this is why I kept hitting on the whole professional thing because he is. He sees the shit going down. He knows what's going to happen. He's he's, and guess what? He's the only one who gets away, and he gets away with the diamonds. He he hides under the the the, the little ramp. Yeah, that the, that's by them. He's just hiding under. Yeah, beneath. everyone falls to the ground, dead or nearly dead. Right. Uh, um, Mr. White. Harvey Keitel is moaning and right. has obviously been shot, but not dead yet. Same thing with Mr. Orange. And Mr. Orange is still hanging out yep. with that gunshot wound to the gut. And a second gunshot. <laughs> and a second gunshot wound. <laughs> I mean, Mr. Orange is, he's, he's really he's wants Superman. To, he's Superman. He really wants, well, he wants to be the hero. He yeah, wants he does. to bring, he wants to make sure, sh- he's hanging on. Right. Because he wants to make sure that the LAPD knows that he brought these guys. Right, in. right, exactly. But uh, Mr. Pink comes out <laughs> clean. And this is why I love him, because he's the only one who kept a level head, and he grabbed the diamonds and he ran. He wasn't trying to help anybody, wasn't trying to make sure everyone was dead. And to be clear in the storyline, the diamonds of co- were brought back from right. Nice Guy Eddie, Mr. White. It was kind of glossed over, it feels like. Because it wasn't evident. I don't recall it ever being like a story point and like where you see the suitcase or the briefcase and right like, right you know what i mean right um but that that just to so that we're clear on the storyline it was brought back they did he did indeed stash it right 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 he did and then they had brought it back but he gets away and mr white's moaning it's a it, this scene this ending was kind of weird yeah for me it it, it seems a little quentin tarantino kind of being a little artsy fartsy trying to do do it without doing it. If I to be honest, there was a I felt cheated. Totally, totally, totally. You know what I mean. So end up what ends up happening is you have Mr. White, who's moaning and shot. Mr. Orange, who's 
also been wounded now twice. And I, w- once again, I don't, in this, <laughs> Mr. White's on death's door. Yeah. And he, like, crawls over to Mr. Orange. To hold and, like, him while he dies him. or something. I, this is where I got, I took umbrage. Right. Because I just didn't feel like, what did we just watch? Like, this is, the ending for me is hard because I didn't ultimately care at all. No. So, like, I had gone through this little wild ride of style and, and some cool things and some fun characters and great dialogue, but then, like, the ending was just kind of blah. Yeah, yeah. For me. For sure. That's the feeling of it, being It's, cheap, it's cheap. a little anticlimactic, which is weird considering they just had a Mexican standoff and everyone died. But it's still, it's just, you don't care about these characters enough to be really concerned. It's a, it's kind of interesting because the the movie's not really about anything. <laughs> it's not. It's not. You know what I mean? It's like a splice of life of a bunch of criminal heist, jewelry heist guys. Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of ends with all of them killing themselves. Right. I don't know. Maybe he's trying to go with a deeper subtext that I'm not following. But the movie at the end for me, Mr. White goes over. They're like embracing Mr. Orange, Mr. White. They're kind of like consoling each other in death. Right. And then you start to hear externally the sirens Mm -hmm. going on. So, you know, the cops are coming. Joe's dead. Everyone's dead anyway. The cops. So much for being half a block away and and going (laughs) to swoop in as soon as Joe showed up. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, where was the, where were they on the timing? Exactly, and that that was something that bugged me too. That logistical error, right? Come on, Quentin. And then you can hear the car, the, the cars coming from a mile away. They slowly build and slowly build. It takes forever, for half a mile right. or for half a block. <laughs> exactly. But they, the, the ending, this embrace. They're both still alive. They're moaning, and Mr. Orange, uh, or sorry, Mr. White, is kind of almost cradling. Mr. Orange. Right. And then Mr. Orange, in his last little breath of life, really, says, I'm a cop. Why? I mean, why? At this point, what? Why? And he says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Does he feel guilt because he lied and, and because Mr. White trusted him? See, and this is where on City on Fire, it's handled much better because he actually explains why he's telling him he's like i i feel like i owe you he actually says it on city so this whole thing has been lifted directly from this movie like it's that's why i have a hard time with it being called an homage because it's basically the same thing it's the same thing exactly so that so city on fire also has a shitty ending yeah well i get and i haven't seen i've just seen bits and kind of comparisons but he does explain he's like i feel like i owe you uh, and I can't remember what it was, but it was. It, it, there's at least an explanation. Yeah, the only thing I could compare to that is like when he does say "I'm sorry," I think it's partly in the fact that he, this guy trusted him. Yeah. So like, you know what I mean? Like Mr. White right. trusted Mr. Orange enough to give him where he's from and what his name is, and also like at the end before he divulges that he's a cop, he's like, you know, cr- cr- cradling right. him to like try to comfort him in death he basically just got shot to death for sticking up for him yeah for defending him if if that was me even if i'm on death's door i think i'm gonna let him 
just not know. Just be like, just be self-satisfied in the fact that you stuck up for me. Like, I'm not going to tell you that you were wrong. The last thing I do is tell you that you were wrong. Right. And everyone died because of that. Right. Um, so I think the only thing that you could chalk it up to would be that he feels that guilt for having Mr. White trust him so heavily. I think so, yeah. It's there. But anyway, I don't think it. it's, it's not really about anything. Like, there's no... <laughs> Just, look, it's, it's true. Um, <laughs> you know, last week we talked about who's that knocking at my door, and it also has hints of really not being about not anything. That, but not about anything. And so I just, you know, we could discuss that in probably more depth, but the ending, ultimately the cops come in, and um, after Mr. Orange divulges to Mr. White, hey, I am a cop, Mr. White holds his gun to Mr. Orange's head, and then the cops come in, and they're like, hey, put the gun down, put the gun down. And the camera's pushing in the whole time. The camera's pushing in, and then you hear gunfire, in the cam- and Mr. Uh, White falls over, but you don't see him fall over. You just see him fall out of frame, and it just kind of sits. Well, first you over. hear a gunshot, and that's presumably the Presumably him. his shooting Mr. Orange. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's just done so sloppily. That's what I, the other thing is the ending not only doesn't mean anything, but also technically it doesn't really, it's not because he, he's Tarantino's usually pretty deliberate and good at how mm-hmm. to execute right. the style. It's not like what happened. Yeah. It's like it fell flat. It, like he didn't it, know how to execute this, this final thing. Yeah. In, in all of its kind of grandiose exploitive nature of Tarantino, you know, um, I just think it's kind of like a shrug at the end. Yeah. At the end. I agree. You know. I agree. (laughs) Okay. You know. That was cool. Um, (laughs) It was cool. Whatever happened, it was cool. So this is, look, this is uh, Reservoir Dogs. Um, A couple little details that are some fun backstory uh, trivia. Um, and, And we're not validating whether these are absolutely authentic or not, but... These are ones you can find. The film's budget was so low that many of the actors simply used their own clothing as wardrobe. I don't believe that. <laughs> yeah. I don't it know. says, I mean, maybe they had $1.2 or $1.5 million. Most notably, Chris Penn's track jacket. I could see that. I could see him wearing that totally. Cruising around LA in that thing. Yeah. <laughs> Now, this is kind of cool, though, for independent filmmakers. You know, one of the things we do in the podcast, we try to do, like, first-time directors because they're all a little different. You see the growth, like we talked about last week with the Scorsese. But this is kind of fun because how do you get wardrobe? What do you do as you're making a movie? Like, when you have no money, like, how do you resource or pull together the resources? It says the signature black suits, which, by the way, for those that haven't seen the movie yet, they all wear the same suit. Right. Uh, all the Mr. Black, Mr. White, Mr. Orange, Mr. Pink, all of them. Signature blast suits were provided by a designer for free because of her love for American crime film genres. That sounds about right. Um, <laughs> she just gave him free jacket, free wardrobe. Look at Tarantino working the the designers. Uh, well, I mean, look, if, if you're a first time filmmaker, you got oh, you got to do it. You got to sure. do it. Yeah. Um. This is what it says. The budget wouldn't cover police assistance for the for traffic control. So in the scene where Buscemi forces a woman out of her car and drives off in it, he could only do so when the traffic lights were green. 
I buy that. It's a quick but, scene. But what about the you know the scene where he's running down the street with the cops? You know they like, might have just gorillaed that shit. They may have because that's not like. But there's a lot of there's a lot of extras. He's pushing people over. Like there's but I three just mean, cops chasing you might, after him. That per, because of the way it's shot is so simple, which is like uh, you could literally get in a car and just go true, down the street true. anywhere in the valley and hopefully cross your fingers that a cop doesn't pull you over for right. a permit. I mean, I, it wouldn't put it past them. But, yeah, sure. you're right. Um, here's an interesting fact. I want to hear what you think about this one. Quentin Tarantino was originally going to play Mr. Pink. Doesn't surprise me. Although he made a point of uh, letting all the actor, other actors audition, Buscemi came in to read for it, and Tarantino told him that he really wanted the part for himself. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh my and that, God. The, <laughs> that the only way Buscemi could possibly wrestle it from him was to do a killer audition, and Buscemi duly complied. Uh, absolutely. Well, yeah, because if you're... I mean, Tarantino's a great filmmaker, no questions. But if you're talking about acting, like, Buscemi's going to blow him oh, out of the water. Oh, for sure, for sure. I just thought it was funny. I mean, Tarantino, well, although, I was going to say... He's I'm, not bad. No, I was going to say, I, I'm surprised he didn't want Mr. Blonde, because I think he could play a good psychopath, because he did he but did not great... like Madsen. In Dust Till Dawn, he was great. Oh, yeah, of course, not like Madsen, but he, no, was, right. he played a great psychopath from he Dust can, Till Dawn. He, it's not that he can't act. He can. He can. You know, and he's believable, but, you know, there's, like, tears to acting. Right. It's like, are you? do you want to have, like, Michael Jordan or Steve Kerr? He is, Steve Kerr's a good player. Right, right. But, like, right, Michael right. Jordan's Michael He's Jordan. He's not going to get your title on his own. Exactly. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, – Tarantino is a good cameo. He's a good cameo, and that's what he should be. Like, in Pulp Fiction – He's quirky, you know, right. and you see him and he, he's good. Like, it's 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 good. And he comes in as a day player, lands a few lines right. and walks off. Right. Or is it gone? For, adds a little levity to the to the the scene and then he's gone. Or in the case of this film, they come cruise around. He bumps into a car in front of him yeah. after the heist. They're running from yeah. cops. He's all bloody and battered. He says, I can't see. Yeah, I can't see. And then he and Mr. Orange is like, it's just blood in your eyes. And then all of a sudden he, he's dead. And then telling a, a story about a big dick in a cafe. And then that's <laughs> it. I mean, that's what he's there for. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, in an interview on BBC in 2009, Tarantino said he was proud the movie is often on the top 10 heist movies, even though you never actually see the heist. True. I'll give him that. True. One that I read that's not from here, though, that I want to bring up is he Tarantino in another interview mentioned that he based a lot of this film off of The Killing. The Killing is a 50s movie by Stanley Kubrick and it's a heist film on a racetrack. Okay. And he was like what I hit and you're saying uh City of Fire for Tarantino and right. his, uh in terms of structure and the story his inf his 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 influence or his inspiration was apparently The Killing. I could see that as an inspiration, but he basically just stole City of Fire. Well, there's actually things in the killing City on like fire. they kind of uh, end in a bit of a similar fashion. Oh, do they? In, in some okay. ways, yeah, in some ways. Um, here, here's something, <laughs> Mr. Orange's apartment, right where he does that great scene that we talked mm -hmm. about, where he's pointing at himself, trying to amp himself up, cheer himself up, or not cheer himself up, but get ready for the the big show. Uh, with the criminals in his apartment was the upstairs to the warehouse where most of the movie takes place. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you notice all the coffins in that warehouse? I didn't notice them. Yeah, they're have to go standing back up. They're kind of covered, but you can see them. It's 
It was an, a mortuary, I guess. Oh, that's interesting. Where they shot that. Um, Tim Roth refused to read for the film. What? So it says he did insist on going out drinking with Tarantino. Okay. And Harvey Keitel. He agreed to read for them uh, when they were all drunk. <laughs> so I won't read it, but okay, I'll read it if I get you a little yeah. tipsy first. Can you imagine going out and drinking with those three? Oh, man, that'd be fun. That'd be hilarious. Filmed in 35 days. Wow. That's pretty fast. I mean, it makes sense. There's not yeah, a lot of locations. Not, right. Yeah. Nothing complicated. <clears throat> a couple more here because they're kind of fun. Um, here's, a, here's a potentially controversial one. <clears throat> Tarantino had to fight Miramax boss Harvey Ke Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein. I almost got him mixed <laughs> up there. To keep the torture scene in the film. I yeah, I heard that. Weinstein wanted to get rid of it. As Weinstein felt it would have a serious negative effect on the audience. And it does. That burning scene it we does. talked about, you want to stop the film. Very true. But that's but it's also it the most iconic film. It's the most iconic scene. scene. Yeah. And uh Weinstein relented. That's a first. I know. <laughs> in many aspects of in his many life. Many aspects of his life. Whatever happened to that anyway, yeah. that storyline. Is he still in Is he in jail? I don't know. He might be in jail. On. I haven't followed. I him. know. Um We already talked about that one. I'll edit this part. I just want to grab a couple more. This is uh, so. Another one is this is kind of interesting. More recently, apparently, Steve Buscemi in, a, in another podcast said everyone had a difficult time with Lawrence Turney. That's Joe, mm -hmm. that's the, the actor who plays Joe, because he uh, was easily distracted and kept forgetting his lines. Oh my god! <laughs> Tarantino had and everyone else were so upset with him that Quentin fired Lawrence on the third day of filming. You're kidding me. That's what it says. But he's in the movie. So I don't know how many days they took to film with him. Maybe they readjusted the schedule and had him shot him out before. I did hear him. something. I read something about he and Madsen getting into it. There was a, well, yeah, and apparently there was tiffs between some of these the actors, particularly the Lawrence Tierney was like the one that was <laughs> on the day, on a day uh, off during the shoot, Tierney was arrested for allegedly pulling a gun on his nephew. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. Can you imagine trying to manage this as your first movie? Tarantino's, yeah, that's what he said. He said, <laughs> and Tarantino said, Tierney was taken from his bell arraignment to the set. You're kidding me. So that's a lot of pressure. I mean, as a first time director, you're like, oh where's this? Oh, my God. That's so much to, to take on. It's crazy. Um, let's do one more here, and then we'll kind of get into kind of a, a final summation of it all. Um, <laughs> the film contains. 272 uses of the word fuck. <laughs> Someone sat down and counted it. That's hilarious. That's a lot. That's, that's a lot. That's a lot. That is a lot. If that's true, that is a lot of that's fucks. A, that's a lot of fucks. Holy cow. Um, okay, last one, I promise. Or no, two more. Two more. Two all right, more. all right. The line where Mr. White tells Mr. Pink, I need you cool. Are you cool? Uh, was added into the script after a conflict between Lawrence Tierney and Michael Madsen. <laughs> to break the scuffle and continue shooting, Tarantino said to Tierney, Larry, 
I need you cool. Are you cool? Nice. Nice. And that was literally Keitel's ad lib into the film based nice. on what Tarantino told uh, Tierney. That's great. And then I think a good little ending here to get us into the final wrap-up. Ed, uh, editor Sally Menke's agent originally lobbied for her not to take the film. Really? Menke disagreed and went on to end, edit Quentin Tarantino's first six films. What would the cinematic world look like if she had not taken I mean, that it job? goes back to that conversation. I really think, look, Tarantino's great. Yeah. I like his stuff. I'm not in the same arena as most people where I'm a Tarantino fanatic. Yeah, me neither. And I will actually, while we're talking about this, uh, say that this is not, like, people hold this and Pulp Fiction up there as their top two or three it, of, Tarantino. Know, of Tarantino films. Usually it's like Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. or maybe you th- you'll hear people throw like a Kill Bill yeah. or something in there. Look, I like all those movies. I do. I think they're good movies, but they're not in my favorite top tier, and neither is Reservoir Dogs, not even in the top three. Oh, really? Maybe not even in the top five. So what's your, what's, what's your top? What's your number one? I have the most abstract Tarantino film Guess what, what? Tell me what you think, based on his portfolio, might be my favorite film. Okay, I'm looking at it right now. Oh, this will be a fun little uh, game. What the Hateful you, Eight? No. Get one more guess. Uh, it's not his segment in Sin City. No. Okay, no. all right. That's a pass. Jackie Brown. Yep. 100%. That's actually, I, know, I know quite a few people who like that more than anything else he's done. I don't know anybody, so I want to meet him because everybody I ask, well, I do know, you're right, there's always a few. Yeah. But it's not one that people think, oh, Tarantino. Right. It's right, not Kill right. Bill. It's not Pulp Fiction. It's right. not Reservoir Dogs. And uh, like you were mentioning, you know, getting back to what you were saying, you know, we're talking about Sally Menke editing his first six films. Like, what would it be like? Like, I mean, so much to credit to her for how she's helped, she helped kind of shape his. Mm-hmm. career because i think that as all of us know like not taking away anything from the director there it is an auteur medium this is the visionary medium right filmmaking but the editing means so much and right. i think she helped like if you watch his films she just helped shape that style and that right. brand right. of what he is and what we see him to as today well i i mean i'm obviously very biased because i'm a an editor that's my job right me too so uh, i'm very biased but i think editing is crucial i mean it's crucial you can have the best movie in the world and if the editing sucks the movie's gonna suck and vice versa right you could have a, a pile of shit and you have a good editor a killer editor and you, you got a good piece piece of cinema yep 100 percent. and and anyways i think she's got a lot of uh a cr- she should have a lot of credit to how the movie comes about yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, quickly, before we get into the last little bit, one more thing is, okay, we t- Okay, so I'm saying Jackie Brown. I won't get into the depth of why because it will take sure. too long, but I will say that that's, in, that's my number one Tarantino film, and people go, that's insane. I'll, it's a great movie. Uh, I love that. One thing I love about Tarantino films is his ensemble cast. Yes. He always has the best actors. He does. So that's, that's great. Um, where would you put uh reservoir dogs on his on his film portfolio for you i put it i'm just guessing but i'm seeing it like in that that five spot 
Yeah, you know, I haven't seen everything he's done. I actually like Kill Bill, Kill Bill Part 2. I like that it's one fun. a lot. It's fun. The first one's fun, too, but the second one, I really... I felt like the story was a lot better. Well, you get into that. Also, to be honest, like Kill Bill Volume 1 is that little bit of story set up in some regards. Right. And, and you get more, a little more payoff in Volume 2. For sure. And it's way more stylized. But And I feel like they really kind of dug in. They, they put the style behind them a little bit in Volume 2 and kind of went for that. That's So that's up there for me. I, I would probably put... Again, I'm not a huge... Tarantino fan, but I would put this probably, I'd probably put Pulp Fiction number one, and that's just this is close to to ousting that, but the, like we talked about, the ending is just flat. It's yeah, just so super, flat. Yeah, there's nothing. Well, th- look, there's nothing there throughout the whole film. Well, I think maybe in a traditionalist way, that's why I like Jackie Brown so much. Right, Because right. it's kind of got a, that, 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 that constant flow and through For sure. line of a story For almost. Sure. And Django Unchained, I actually really liked until he got all Tarantino and got all bloody. Yeah, like, I thought the story was great until I really liked Django until Unchained. the end, and then it just was like Jesus. Like I was invested, and now it just got totally unrealistic. What I did about- not. I didn't like Inglorious Bastards very much. Oh, see, it's in probably my top three. See, I love the part with the the evil Nazi guy again. I have an affinity for villains. I thought he was fantastic, and I can't remember his name off the top. Christopher of my- Waltz. Christopher Waltz. They needed more of that, or they needed more of the bastards. They needed one of those, but it, it felt like just it just felt too split. I for mean, me. Eli Roth's character is awesome. Oh, of course, of course. The bear, the bear right. Jew, of course, yeah. Or the Jew bear, the Jew bear, yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Um, which is great. Yeah, I mean his his body of work's fun and it is impressive. Look, coming out the gate with Reservoir Dogs is super fun. It's a fun movie. I think anybody should go see it. To, there's a shock value, there's an awe value, there's an intrigue in terms of character. The story ends up a little dry towards the end, and there's not a whole lot of pure attachment to mm-hmm. rooting for what's happening necessarily. It's more a train wreck in the sense of like, whoa, and then you move on. Right, right. Um, My favorite thing that Tarantino's ever done, though, is not he didn't direct it, but he wrote it. And that's, let me guess real quick. Let me guess. Kay. Okay. Okay. The 1995 ER episode, Motherhood. Oh, of course. How did, I just, you nailed it. I'm looking at his it. body of work, <laughs> no. and it says ER TV series, 1995, <laughs> Motherhood, episode one. No, my, fa- or one episode. my favorite is uh, directed by Robert Rodriguez, and that's from Dusk Till Dawn. He wrote it, and he, was, and he acted in it. That's right. Love that movie. Love it. That's the one with George Clooney in it. Yeah, and yeah. I'm, not, I'm not a huge Robert Rodriguez fan either. But I love the, you get halfway through it. You I think, like El Mariachi. Oh, that's great. It's great. That's a fun yeah. movie. It is. It is fun. That's actually good. We should, I think that, wasn't that his first film? That was film? his first one. So that's one we should probably end up doing later. And too. there's a lot of fun tidbits about that one, about yeah, how we shot that. One. Yeah, that's a fun, fun movie. It's good. It's really yeah, good. it is. Yeah, I'll put in, what about, did you see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? No, I haven't just seen came that out? yet. Uh, I loved it. Did you? Mm-hmm. I've heard mixed things. People either it's, love it or they hate it's it. It's in my top three. Is it? Okay. Yeah, see, but I'm the contrarian. Most people, are, like I said, they're going to say Kill Bill, right. Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs. I'm going Jackie Brown, Inglorious Bastards, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, top three. Um, okay, so we'll get into some of these ratings. Let's get into... Uh, so anyway, everyone dies except for Mr. Pink. <laughs> The professional of the bunch. The pro. The pro. So uh, the ratings here, we've got, we'll start out with the uh, Rotten Tomatoes. 
to the the critics certified fresh 91% the critics I can see that I can see that the audience comes in at 94% out of 445,000 user oh ratings that's insane that's a lot of ratings and then IMDb comes in uh, out of a, out of ten, they're at eight point three, out of eight hundred and fifty three thousand ratings, which is really high for IMDb. It, it, feels, it is high. It feels like to me IMDb is always on the low side. No, that um, that is high. Eight point three is pretty high. It's I think on IMDb. And you're talking about a million people rating the film. Yeah, yeah. So 8.3 is a damn good That's score. That's really good. That's really good. So give us your final summation of the film, Alan, and give us a, a little bit of a rating on Reservoir Dogs. I really, I really like it. I think it's enjoyable. Uh, it is definitely more si- style over substance, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, and again, that torture scene just... It grips me. I mean, it's it's so good. It's very very good, and that's why you see it homage in so many films and referenced all over pop culture because it's great. Um, the ending does suck though. Like it's it's just it falls flat. It's not like it's a bad ending. It just falls flat. There's it's nothing bad. It's it's just. I'm gonna. Lie, I'm not. It feels lazy to pardon me. it. I think it's a bad ending. I yeah. just do. It just feels it feels lazy to me. Um, I don't know what they could have done to save it, but I, I think. It just it just kind of sucks. It just is blah. So that definitely knocks it down. I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it a seven. Okay, seven out of ten. And if, it, the, Mr. Blondes. Yeah, seven seven out of ten. Um, cut off ears. <laughs> <laughs> you would go that direction, yeah, of course. But you I horror mean, freak. And if it wasn't, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And if it wasn't for. This cast, I would have knocked it down to maybe a six and a half or a six. But this cast, yeah, and and the the stuff that's done well is done so well that I just I'm kind of intrigued by the whole thing. So, and I'm a notoriously hard grader. There's a there's an intrigue to it, like you said. There's there's no mention. There's there's a lot of you know we talked about the stylistic look of it and the feel just kind of how it's put together it's a little different just in terms of structure not story structure but just technical structure of like you know he's not really trying to follow a lot of rules necessarily right just doesn't you you get that early on in in terms of him as a filmmaker he don't give a shit yeah he just wants to do what he's gonna do yeah i love that unapologetic um here's my story even so much so is stretching the idea that there's some form of plagiarism there totally in a sense like I, as far as i'm mentioned. concerned totally but he, he did it really well though but he just doesn't care yeah and there's always something about tarantino films that i love and you know a lot of times as a filmmaker you go into something you're oh you're thinking too much about what the audience is gonna think and I get the vibe that that's not really his modus operandi. That's not his approach to the whole mm-hmm. thing. He just does He does what he likes. Yep. And he doesn't give a, a shit about what anybody else thinks. Right. And it pays off. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I read somewhere about him, by the way. He talks about, he said, 
I don't let people read my scripts. Interesting. You know, and for a filmmaker, mostly when you did a draft or two and you're kind of polishing it up, yeah. you hand it off, you want to get some Absolutely. ideas back, some feedback. He's like, I don't let them read the script. Like um, my friends and mm. my colleagues and other people that I like and trust, I don't let them read my scripts. I, uh, I read them to them. Okay. Okay. So he, they don't get a that physical make, copy that, that they get to read. <laughs> But they come, and he reads them the script. Something tells me it's not just about conveying what's in there and the way he wants it to be come across. He wants to act that shit out. Like, he loves being in front of the camera. He loves being an actor. He loves being in the limelight. But I'm not going to lie to you. I want to be a fly on the wall of him reading a script. Oh, it'd be, it'd be a blast. How fun would that it'd be? It'd be a blast. His new project's the untitled Star Trek project. I saw that. I saw that. It would be an interesting script because I don't know that he's writing it, but he might. I assume that he will because he writes his all, all his right. own stuff. Right. So I don't. That's a big franchise, though. That's not just going into something original. It's it's interesting that they're that he is interested in taking over something like that. It's his last film, Alan. It's just, yeah, that's we'll what see. he proclaims. We'll see. We'll see. I don't buy it. He likes the limelight too much. Yeah, he seems a little uh, showboaty that way. Yeah. For yeah, sure. I agree. That's okay. I don't have a problem. Yeah, with I don't that. either. I we like him for that flair. Yeah, exactly. I that's mean, what, in that's the what culture we go. He's an iconic figure culturally. Uh, he's his own brand. Everybody sure. loves that. We all love that about him. Whether we think that it's agreeable or we, you know what I mean. Right. Uh, we like it for sure. You know, in as a film instructor in the college, like and at the university, it's like you mentioned Tarantino, and the students go no, Gaga. Just, they just. I mean, they, go they crazy. love it. People just cream their pants over this guy. They it's, love it. They love it. Uh, I'm not in that camp all the way. I, look, I like that. His might stuff. be kind of what soured me on him a little bit. Is that just the the, uh, the blind love that people have for him? And in, in in when I was in film school, it's just a little. It's just a little off putting. The because he's good, but he's not. He's not God. He's pretty good. I mean, he's good. I mean, I yeah. But once again, it goes for me more than anything. What I love about him, it's not so much that he's the most, he's the most effective, most uh, prominent, most elaborate. He's some of that storyteller. Mm-hmm. It's that he doesn't care. He does him right. So when you talk about like learning a lesson about like just be you. Like, there's something true and authentic to the way he puts movies together, and I love that. For sure. Cause you, and it does carry that. So when you go, oh, it's a Tarantino film, we know what you're talking about. Yeah. But it's not because it's because he, it, it's because of how he does it, but it's also really because he just doesn't care. He just does it. He's just going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that. One, one little qualm I have before I get into my rating. Why does the poster look like now there's multiple posters right Mm -hmm. but that more than anything why does the special edition poster it's this one right here okay yeah i've seen that one why does the special edition poster look like the uh the that thing you do poster from tom hanks like oh i mean the coloration like it's guys with like the coloring and stars and like lines. It looks like what is, I was just noticing that. I don't know why that came to my mind. It's not uh, an exact replica, but like the color scheme, right? And the well, there are there the are, vibe. It's there are themes to movie posters, obviously, and and it seems like that is more 
and you'll have to look it up, the special edition one. But that is more along the lines of like a romantic comedy type thing. That's you know? that's because if you look at the exactly, it looks like that. It does. It has the color right, scheme and right. otherwise of, of a romantic comedy. Even the typecase, it, it just it feels like it's. It doesn't feel indie. Uh-uh. It feels like raw, like first film. It feels like a fucking marketing team jumped in and was like, let's <laughs> color scheme it this way. Exactly, exactly. What the hell were they doing? Because that original poster, this one here, that shit's cool. Oh, yeah. You know? I hate that. Uh, that it's almost the silhouetted black and white figures of the six guys. It's great. Yeah. Looks like it's on a cardboard box. <laughs> it's cool. Okay. So anyway, I digress. Uh, ratings. So you're at, uh, you said seven. Seven. Seven out of ten cutoff years. Yep. Uh, IMDb is at 8.3. I'm going uh, not at the highest level of my Tarantino films. I'm going to actually agree with you across the board. I'm going with a seven. Wow. Yeah. Um, For the idea that I'm entertained Mm -hmm. the entire time, um, stylistically intrigued, not... With the exception of the part with Mr. Uh, Blonde nearly ready to burn up this cop, not really emotionally involved in the sense of, like, I, I want to know everything about these characters and I want to, you know, feel it. Right. That scene gives me more anxiety than anything. For sure. Um, but intriguing, interesting, entertaining. Like we mentioned, I think a poor ending. I'll just go out and say it's bad. I don't think it's a good mm-hmm. ending at all, both technically and how you sum it up. It just cuts, and he's like, here we go. That's fine. I don't know. I know what he's trying to do, but it just, I don't, maybe frame it differently. I don't know. I just think any, I think a big part of it is the technical approach to it. It just doesn't feel like he, I feel like he, of all people, could have done better For technically sure. on how to end it out. For sure. So I'm going with with you on the seven. Uh, budget was an estimated 1.2 million. Um, opening weekend, US 2.8. So it didn't do fantastic. The cumulative gross worldwide is 2.8. Like if you're looking at it financially, 1.2 to to make and 2.8 on the other side. So it wasn't like we talked about in the beginning of the podcast. Right. It wasn't this financial success, although it was um, critically acclaimed and, and re- well-received at film festivals. The Weinstein's got some money in their pockets, but I'm sure they would have hoped for more. Yeah. And that, and by the way, that's a whole other side story. This yeah. was Miramax, yep. owned by Harvey Weinstein. So um, we'll go seven out of uh, ten. I'll stick with you on that. And uh, this is Reservoir Dogs. I think anybody, once again, if you're a Tarantino fan, of course you've seen it, I'm sure. If you haven't seen it, I still suggest watching it. It's a fun watch. Yeah, it's. I think it's a lot and of fun. entertaining. Yeah. So, you know, uh, that's a big part to the movies. Like, we like to go to be entertained mm-hmm. and enjoy ourselves. I like, sometimes I like other things, too. Emotional or intellectual challenges or right. whatever it might be. But if you're looking for a, a quick, a quickie <laughs> in terms of having fun right. and just kind of not always kind of being interested on what's happening right. on the on the screen. This is a good movie for that. Yeah, I think I think so. I I honestly think it probably could have used a score. I think there's some drama could have been heightened a little bit with the right score in there. But if you think about it, most of his films never have a score. Yeah, and they're I, all just I like music that, tracks. But I'm just thinking like the standoff was was very interesting, but it wasn't overly suspenseful. You wanted like a Sergio Leone spaghetti western. Maybe not that over wee the wee top. Wee Maybe wee not that. But but something to just to to just up the tension a little bit. No, I get it. Because it was, I mean, it was it was intriguing, and I wanted to see what happened, but I wasn't nervous. I think it's also, yeah, I wasn't either. 
and I think it's all, and that could have helped kind of heighten that, that anxiety at the, at, towards the end. But I think that any, also one last little takeaway would be anybody who wants to write specifically or act should watch the movie. Definitely. Because even though the writing doesn't plot structure wise, get us overly emotionally involved, the style and the tone of the writing is incredible. Right. And of course, like we mentioned at the beginning, the performances are phenomenal. Yep. Um, so, Reservoir Dogs, uh, go check it out. Um, Tarant- Quentin Tarantino's first uh, feature film. This kind of introduces the world to Tarantino. And one thing we do get, by the way, Alan, is that we know this guy can make movies. Yeah, he can. You know no what doubt, I mean? No so, doubt. Out From the, the get go. Out the gate, you go, uh, like them, love them, hate them, don't love You know, you're not thrilled. Right. Whatever it is, you get the real quickly that this guy can put together a, a yep. good story. What you're saying, or a something. good movie, you, a movie, right. I should say. Because you look at Scorsese, and and he was in film school, and his first, in my opinion at least, was a total disaster. Tarantino comes from a video store, and which it might be a better film school. It it, it might be it in might some be. ways because what I what I always found interesting about his story, by the way, is people would drive to that video store to talk to Quentin because he doesn't surprise me. This is a true story on a regular basis. They'd go to that store to rent from there because they wanted him to give him the obscure or give him the details on Mm. a movie or listen to him go, Hey, here's what this movie is. Right. They liked the way that he was passionate about talking about movies and also his knowledge about all the films. Yeah. So, they would go out of their way to go to that video rental store. Doesn't surprise me. So, and it may be, that's a great education, by the way, just watching, watching, sure. watching, For watching sure. movies. Speaking of watching movies, go check it out, Reservoir Dogs by Quentin Tarantino. Uh, next week, we'll keep the podcast rolling. Uh, stick with us. Go subscribe. We're at uh, www.tameaperture.com. You can go find all the social media links there, and you can also listen to the podcast right there on the website. This is... Gabe and Alan with the Tame Aperture Podcast signing out. Until next time, take care. The Tame Aperture Podcast is produced by Dutch Angle Pictures in association with Studio B Productions. Listen, watch, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and YouTube.